Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where we review movies on a podcast. Very succinct. Well put. Thank you. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for The Rap. I write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, write for Slash Film. And I've seen all 16 of the Witchcraft movies. You know what? Not many people... I don't even think the producers of Witchcraft can say that. Oh, golly, no. <laughs> I think they gave up after a while. Although, uh, 14, 15, and 16 mm. were made far... Uh, many years after number 13. Exactly my point. And I feel like the makers t- of 13 probably <laughs> didn't even bother watching the later ones. Because no, they're like, oh, uh, we, 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 we told our story. And uh, they were all made, like, they were, all three of those movies mm-hmm. were shot in like the same one week period mm-hmm. in 2016 at the same massage parlor in Silver Lake. They show a lot of uh, exteriors of the building from across the street, so mm-hmm. I don't think they had permission to film it. What this means, Whitney, uh-huh. is that the wit, and if you've never seen the witchcraft movies, they are extremely low budget, supernatural, sexy, S- private smut- eye type yeah, films, smutty supernatural movies. Yeah, they've made they've made sixteen of those suckers, and you probably never even heard of it. Uh, that means that they had to make some more movies in order to keep the, the rights to the to the franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's no other so. reason. There's no no one's calling for it, so they must mm. want to hang on to it. That but means so, somebody said, "No, no, I have a vision. We need three of these." Yeah. That means we can get those rights if they run out. Yeah, that means that means that those are potentially. Be before, uh... We need to reach out. We need to seek it out. We need to acquire uh-huh. witchcraft, and then we can start our own official witchcraft podcast, which will actually be like. Like official, like <laughs> be the authorized witchcraft yeah, podcast. Every single week, a new topic brought up by the witchcraft movies. Mm-hmm. You're welcome, audience. The witch. There's not a good one in the lot, by the oh, way. Yeah. They're they're all total garbage. Yeah. Like they start out looking kind of like real movies. Yeah. Which, Some of them which like is, good overacting in them. What's awesome is that even if you and I, you know, put our money where our mouth was and we made a witchcraft movie. Uh-huh. There's nowhere to go but up. Yeah, that's true. Even if it's bad, it's like, it's consistent. <laughs> we did great. Just as good as the other ones. You're welcome, audience. I, I I know, you know, we live in LA. I think we both know a lot of professional actors and performers. I could make it yeah, work. We could cast them with just our friends. Yeah. Shoot it in our apartment. Why not? The witchcraft we, we, movies didn't do much better. You know, we even know like a couple of famous people probably like a do couple. us a favor. I don't know about famous-ish. that. Famous-ish. We know internet famous people. Let's not go nuts. What, what was that? What was the movie? Your internet famous. That's the next best thing to being actual famous. That was from Gem and the Holograms. That was from Gem and the Holograms. Yeah. Great line. Anyway, we are off already. Wonderful no, tangent. You right know, you know who we are. That's actually a good introduction. That's very, that's <laughs> what yeah. are, But no, what are we you, reviewing this week? No, no. <laughs> fair enough. Honestly, if you if you thought you were if you thought you were listening to a podcast from guys who didn't know the witchcraft movies, now you know. Now you know better. You're, okay. you're in a safe place with us. <laughs> This week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing a whole bunch of new movies. We're reviewing Insidious, The Red Door, the fifth film in that supernatural franchise. Uh, The new Alex Winters um, documentary, The YouTube Effect, which is all about the effect of YouTube. It is. It literally is, actually, yeah. Uh, The new comedy, Joyride. The new comedy? The Outlaws. Uh, The new film, Amanda. The new horror film, Run, Rabbit, Run. And the new documentary, Wham! Wham. Which you have to say like that because it has an exclamation mm. point at the end. Yeah, so, uh, do you want to uh, wake up before we go? Go. Which one do you want to do first? No, no, no. Yeah. Let's 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 keep keep it hanging on like a yo-yo. Uh, let's talk about the big. We usually talk about the biggest release of the week financially. You know, the one people know about. 
probably saw on mass. And this week, boy, it's been an interesting couple of weeks at the box office. Uh, the Flash came out and it was expected to be, you know, hopefully a big hit for Warner Brothers. God knows they needed one. It was a huge bomb, and it as of like this week, it is no longer even in the top ten. Yeah, that's not great. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, then after that, we had Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which has had some mixed reviews. I know some people have gone to bad for it. Whitney and I didn't care for it very much, but regardless, audiences did not flock. It had an okay opening weekend, but it still hasn't made like its budget back after ten days, which is yeah. not great for a summer blockbuster. Uh, not great when you this. That's literally one of the most expensive movies ever made. It's exhilarating yeah. to be in uh, the latter days of a trend. Yeah. Uh, the the three hundred million dollar gigantic tent poles that are expected mm. to make a billion dollars in one weekend. I think those are those are like kind of on the waning edge. There might be a couple more. That's the problem is every uh, once know. in a while there's another one and it kind of makes everyone think, oh maybe maybe all of the failures are the exceptions to the rule. Ne- never and mind not... if there's been eight failures since the last one, but yeah. 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 I I suspect Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning will probably do fine. Maybe so. It's maybe so. I, I feel like a tangible amount of actual interest in that one. Mm. Maybe that one will do fine. Maybe that one will make a, a Hollywood go. Oh, it's okay. We can still spend three hundred million dollars on a movie. Mm. I don't know why. That, I don't know what's in it for you. But, um, uh, but Blumhouse actually has always had the winning formula. They really have. Uh, J- Jason Blum, the one of the founders of Blumhouse, and you know the, the, the guy ret- the name comes from. The, the name comes from, and the retinue of executives and other people yeah. who work there. Uh, have a, a very particular ethos. Um, I think the budget was two million. Like nothing can be over two million dollars. They've gone over that while, since, but, uh, but it's, it's still very low. I, I think the highest budget film they did was uh, one of those Halloween uh, sequels. Yeah, it was like twenty uh, million or something. Yeah, like like that. and and, and the, even that, it was like yeah. twenty million. as big budget. You know, as movies go, yeah. it's pretty low budget. But they focus on the um, horror genre, which has a pretty dedicated built-in audience. People just go to horror movies, mm-hmm. just in general. They might not go to the tune of a billion dollars, which is what a lot of studios assume mm-hmm. success is. But if you only spend five million, ten million, fifteen mm-hmm. million, then and, making and it makes. Tw- you know, 25, 30 in the opening weekend. Yeah, boom, you've already made your budget back and then everything else is gravy from there on out. Uh, that has been the Blumhouse business model. It is not the typical studio idea of a tent pole. If you've heard the phrase tent pole, a tent pole it's is a, a pole. movie that is supposed to be so successful, it holds up the tent and any smaller films that didn't do as well, yeah, that is, the studio can can make up for those losses. It's it's the thing propping up the whole building, the whole structure, yeah, it is that, the, tent, the tent pole. And uh, uh, a lot of studios rely on those. Warner Brothers has had the Harry Potter movies. Uh, Universal has had uh, the Jurassic Park movies. Uh, Disney has the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example. They rely on those. Problem is that sometimes those can collapse, and then what have you got? Yeah. Blumhouse's model is we never spend that much, and that way, if something bombs, we've only lost a couple of million dollars. Yeah, but if something's yeah. a hit, it's nothing but profit. Uh, I, I think one of the big success stories of this year, this wasn't a Blumhouse film, but it is a horror movie, uh, Terrifier 2. Which, uh, that was uh, last year. Oh, that, was, that was late last year. No, Terrifier 2 was this no, year. No, it came out in October. Look it up. I think Terrifier. I think Terrifier Two was like Mar- was like March. No, nah, I, th- I think you're. Um, I think you're completely off. But I'll check. But uh, yeah, Terrifier Two, a uh, gory film about a killer clown. October sixth, twenty twenty-two. Okay, was that a festival or was that like no? An official that festival open? was in August. All right. Uh, 
Okay, you're right. I, I am right about this one. I got gotcha. you. Uh, opened point, opened point in 886 is, theaters that day. Point is, it was made for like a quarter million dollars. It made yeah. for almost nothing as far as movies go. And mm-hmm. uh, but it, and it didn't make terribly much. It made like made 15 million. 15 million, which you know again, yeah. not earth shattering numbers, but compared to its budget, that's a staggering. That's huge. Same profit. with uh, that Winnie yeah. the Pooh movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. which, oh, yeah. which is a, Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey, which is a piece of crap, by the way. But they made it for so cheap. And enough people were interested in the novelty yeah. of its title that it made money. So uh, uh, it was it cost less than a hundred thousand dollars. And boy, does it show! Yeah, and it made five point two million. Now, again, if you're Warner Brothers, you might not look at five point two million and go, "Oh my god, what a staggering number!" Mm-hmm. But compared to how much you spent, mm-hmm. that's a great business yeah, acumen. So, so the the makers yeah. of Winnie the Pooh are they're rolling it. They're, now, they're having a good time with that. I want to make it clear here: the, the reason why we sometimes talk about uh, uh, financials, mm. and we usually don't. And usually don't because it's not actually super important. What we care about is whether the film is any good. Mm. However, this is the film industry, and the film industry is one of the most expensive art forms on the planet. Films are expected to make money, and when they don't make money, the entire paradigm can shift. And all of a sudden, the types of movies we, we get, the way that they get made, can alter dramatically. And that does affect the art directly mm. in terms of what can get made now and how it will be made from, from the studio anyway from the studio oh, perspective yeah. and again and it's and i think it's especially relevant now to, to keep this in mind because we're at a very interesting inflection point where studios particularly big studios like disney and warner brothers uh are starting to get real paranoid about the financial future mm. And we've seen it already. Warner Brothers has taken completed or almost completed movies and just decided never to release them ever mm-hmm. in order to just take the tax write off. They only care about it as a commodity. They don't even care that like having material on hand. Someone someone referred to this in a great way online. It was uh, it was uh, eating uh, your they're eating their seed corn. Okay, yeah, you know, yeah. like you're, they're eating the 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 seeds that you keep. For like later harvests, yeah, so right. like we keep mining the same old IP. Well, when that IP, like Indiana Jones, stops making money the way we thought mm. it would, what new IP have we had? I don't know. We've shit canned all of it. Here, here's my suspicion. It's a dangerous place to be in. So we're talking yeah. about it now because it's it's affecting yeah. the art very directly. Yeah, and here and here's what I'm thinking. A lot of those gigantic movies that yeah. just we made them for three hundred million, then they make a billion. Mm-hmm. My guess is those things aren't making as much money as. For the studio, as we mm-hmm. think they are, they're probably spending more on like advertising. Oh yeah, uh, the, and the the, tip, the, the rule used to be that well, you hang, take. Hang on, hang on, sorry, let me, let me finish my thought. All right. uh, they're making these things. They're not making a lot of money, and uh, they're essentially using them. They're like wielding them mm-hmm. as a way to sort of bolster the brand. And if the brand is bolstered, that's a way to kind of like drive up stock. True. It's and reputation. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're they're ancillary yeah. good things. Yeah. So the only way they're really making money off of these things is stock. Mm-hmm. And here recently, a, some people have been put in charge that really don't care about reputation anymore. They just mm-hmm. care about stock. Yeah. Uh, and so it actually isn't a big loss for them because they've actually kind of been losing money on a lot of these bigger ones for a while. Mm-hmm. That's my suspicion. Sure. That, uh, that these things have been kind of a, a drain on the studio system for a while, and we're just now seeing a reckoning come to pass right where uh these movies are now 
you know, it, you know, the audience are saying, oh no, what's going on? They're sort of canceling all these movies. They probably wanted to start that a while ago. Yeah, probably. They probably wanted to stop making these gigantic movies. It was too much for them, but they were locked into this pattern. That, that may actually so, so be the case. The I idea guess, of like shelving something, it's like, wait, why did you do that? You were doing so well. They probably weren't. They're probably yeah. doing pretty badly. Like that, that's, that's like last ditch effort kind of shit. I, I agree that that's probably part of their thinking. Hmm. And I agree that it is useful to try to understand the corporate CEO mind hmm. behind these decisions. However, and I think this is very, very important, you and I as critics and everyone listening as audience members, us included, what is a critic except an audience member who dedicates their whole damn life to it? We don't have to value what they value. Oh, they, no. they care about the bottom line more than anything. We care about I, seeing good pieces of art. I want them to make money so that they can continue making movies. I want to support the industry, but I want the movies to be good, and I want the movies to be preserved, yeah. whether or not they're good. Here, here's That's here's what's what, important yeah. to me, and I think there can be, and has been in the past, a balance. Here's what I want. Interesting art. Yes. I don't give a damn where it comes from. I don't care how much money the industry makes. Mm -hmm. I don't care how much an executive makes somewhere. Yeah. And I don't... I, I don't, don't care if genres come I, and go in popularity. I don't care about We're talking that about all this because they're all connected. And yes, film is a commercial enterprise. But yeah. I'm much, far more concerned with uh, film as an artistic enterprise. Agreed. And if Warner Brothers completely collapses mm -hmm. and little independents sort of spring up in its place and they make more interesting movies, then that's a good thing that happened in terms of art. As long as the industry is yeah. capable of surviving of that, yes. Art, art and culture. Yeah. Um, I agree. I don't, I don't disagree at all. And but because those things, you know, the art and the commerce are so linked, even as critics, we have to become aware of this stuff after yeah. a while. And uh, we, we start to see and discuss movies very strictly in financial terms, and I hate that we have to do that sometimes. I know. I, I, we bring it up once in a while when mm. it feels immediately relevant. Yeah. But generally speaking, we don't care. Mm. Again, a lot of my favorite movies, box office duds. A lot of the movies that are now considered some of the best movies of all time were box office duds. Mm. It doesn't matter in the long run. What matters is that people can find the movies, which is why I hate the erasing the, uh, them off of streaming services or never letting them be seen. And that they can find an audience and then will hopefully, you know, mm. thrive in the in the long term. In any case, that brings us back around to Insidious. Insidious has been a one of those profitable, long-running horror franchises. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it was made by James Wan, who also did the Conjuring films, at least started them. Mm-hmm. They've always felt like they were of a piece to me. Like one, like one was a little like off into a corner. Like you could have crossed those over, and no one would have ever batted an eye. Well, it's easy to confuse because they're very because, similar. And they, yeah, they both star Patrick Wilson. That's yep. a big part of it. Um, they're both about demons and possessions. Uh, demons, yeah, and, and that that was uh, Insidious and The Conjuring uh, mm -hmm. were kind of the two uh, sort of films that were leading the charge in terms of like the haunting trend that became really big uh, yeah, when, it, it got rejuvenated in like know, the 2010s yeah, or yeah. early 2000s it was the torture thing then mm. it was uh found footage was really hip for uh, a long you, time you skipped uh, uh j horror and remakes in that, the middle 2000s that that was also part of it yeah. kind of mixed in there yeah, the garage uh, texas chainsaw that kind of thing yeah the, all of the horror remakes which i'm glad that's over with um mm. uh yeah and then hauntings like pg-13 rated haunting pictures yeah um, did really good uh, those did really, really well, thanks to films like The Conjuring and Insidious. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're still 
going on in those haunting movies. They still there's, do there's not like a, a new trend that I can find yet. It, Other than uh, the, the sort of arch, um, slow-paced kind of haunting movies that I are think, all about sort of intergenerational trauma. Yeah, that, that's, that's I, more of the A24 kind of vibe. There you go, A24 I, corner. And actually, we're going to have one of those later in the podcast. But um, no, the, the Insidious, and I think Insidious is a, is a movie you can really use as a template if you want to like make... Hopefully it's good, but a successful low-budget horror movie because the first Insidious was... It starred Rose Byrne and Patrick Wilson as parents. They had two kids. One of the kids fell into a coma very mysteriously. And when the kid came out of the coma, they found themselves haunted by a creepy demon that looked like Darth Maul. Uh, They brought in some supernatural investigators played by uh, uh, the great Lynn Shea. Mm. Lee Winnell, who also wrote the movies, and um, and directed the third one, and directed the third one, and oh, who played um, who was the other guy? Who was it was uh, Specs and Tucker? Who played Tucker? Yeah. Oh, um, uh, Angus Sampson. Angus Sampson. That was the other guy. Um, and that what was weird about that is they came in and they had a totally different tone. They were like comic relief characters yeah. who showed up in this very serious movie. But generally speaking, it was it, it like was, what it, was if, a, it was a poltergeist knockoff. It was a total poltergeist knockoff. I was getting mm. to that. Almost shameless in its poltergeist knockoffery. It's like, what if poltergeist, but if the paranormal investigators had a slightly more of a Ghostbusters vibe? <laughs> right. That's basically what we had. Uh, the thing that Insidious had that made up for that, that made it distinct, specifically, hmm. from its very obvious uh, uh, inspiration, Insidious is one of the loudest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> a lot of banging. Well, the, uh, the title card alone uh-huh. is like, you know, produced by blank, directed by blank, and then the the insidious title card, the letters are gigantic, and it's just the, like the loudest Bernard Herrmann like, like, like string 70, instrument. It's like 73 violins at yeah, once. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's there to shock you. And, uh... We actually got to interview Lee Winnell at one point, yeah. and, and he thought it was ironic that that was the way they had the title because the word insidious it means actually, actually means like kind of sneaky and underhanded, like it, yeah. it's not supposed to be that loud. But it's kind of uh, ironic, yeah. Uh, it's it also because it was made by Australian filmmakers, they brought that kind of exploitation vibe to it, yeah. where they're just go- swinging little, for the walls in a lot of shots. Oh, kooky! It's like we're we're yeah. gonna swing our heads around, and there's oh no, there's creepy twin ghosts, mm-hmm. and they're standing there. What do they have to do with anything? Not a goddamn thing. <laughs> we have to go. We have to do a seance, and Lin Shay has to wear a gas mask. Why? Because it's kind of weird looking. <laughs> Basically, yeah. They, they're they're just sort of like throwing everything at the wall, see what sticks, yeah. and and a lot of people appreciated that weird kind of over the top integrity. Here, here's the uh, thing that, that carried over into the second one, uh, yeah. where it was revealed that. Oh yeah! Uh, At the end of the last one, Patrick Wilson had gone into like the spirit realm, yeah, but when he'd come back, the, the further they call it in the movie, which will be important in mm-hmm. the Insidious: The Red Door. But when he had come back, he, his his body had been taken possession mm-hmm. of by a demon. The, the idea. So the, the second yeah, one became the, kind of the Shining for a yeah, while. Yeah, and there was like yeah. you could go into a closet, exit another closet. You can kind of travel through time that way. Um, mm-hmm. Like as you go through the further, uh, the mythology of Insidious is is complete hogwash. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a purgatory, a hell, uh, yeah. and people uh, in the various people throughout this series can astrally project, can project yeah. their disembodied consciousness specifically out of their when bodies. they sleep or in the yeah. case of the kid when he's in a coma, and when the they project their consciousnesses into this ghost realm. It's not just mm-hmm. sort of wandering the earth. So yeah, 
And the further is like a parallel universe. Everything looks the same, but there's ghosts around. And there's a lot then, of fog machine. Yeah, yeah, and, there's, and blue yeah. filters on the camera. Yeah. And when uh, human consciousness is in there, the demons and ghosts that sort of hang around there are attracted to life. So when they come back out, uh, the ghosts kind of haunt them for, uh, in, in this ineffable kind of a way. The ghosts haunt them, and the fr- and if they go fur far enough away, like from their bodies, like geographically, like I'm gonna go like see what my parents are up to, blah. Mm. That leaves your body vulnerable, and potentially a demon could could take hold of it uh, and come back instead of yeah. you. And that's what happened to Patrick Wilson in Insidious Two. Insidious Two is nuts. <laughs> Insidious Two, it, this it's really should be very very simple. All right, it's uh, you know the first one's about families, you know, dealing with mysterious illness, very exorcist in a way, uh, and then dealing with you know our child's being haunted by demons. Fine. Next one, dad's been possessed by a demon. It's a lot of shining vibes, but they also throw in, oh yeah, but we have to do this side quest where we investigate like a haunted mental institution and there's like an entire room full of of ghosts and sheets. And and listen, it's fun. Hmm. It's also largely beside the point <laughs> but it's a lot of fun that that movie is uh, it, that yeah. movie is really swinging for the fences and i have a good time i think insidious 2 is probably the most entertaining one of the whole lot yeah, and they call it insidious chapter 2 and then yeah. insidious chapter 3 was directed by lee winnell as a flashback we actually yeah. get to see how uh lynn shay the lynn shay character mm-hmm. who died in the second one yeah uh, kind of how she came to be become a professional medium and know, meet specs and tucker in the first place yeah. as well and, and then, it's uh, cute it's cute. It's, I, it's, it's a good little, as an origin little, story, yeah, but kind of forgettable as an little, actual horror story. Yeah, a little more subdued than the other. Just yeah. not that wildness. Uh, yeah. So I think that that one's not so interesting. Then yeah. there was Idi- uh, Insidious, The Last Key. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out a lot of the demons in these movies uh, are inhuman. Like they, mm-hmm. they're human shaped, but they have like these weird sort of ghostly qualities. And yeah. this, there's this like serial killing ghost that has keys on its fingertips and can lock your throat and make you go silent. Which and is admittedly a very, very creepy yeah, fun, idea. fun images, but yeah. you know, a typical kind of a story. And uh, it's about Lin Shay and Specs and Tucker again. Yeah, well, I think what's really notable is that three, the first two were mostly about Patrick Wilson and Roseburn's family. Mm. And Specs, Tucker, and uh, Elise. Elise is her name. Lin yeah. Shay's character are the side characters. Lynn Shay, uh, sister of Robert Shay, mm-hmm. who was the head of New Line Cinema for a long time. So, so you see big, her in uh, a lot of those movies. Like she's in like Critters. She's in Critters. Uh, she's in A Nightmare on Elm Street. She yeah. plays the English teacher in one scene. That's, nice. that's Lynn Shay. Um, but yeah, they become the protagonists in chapters three and four. Um, the stories just aren't that interesting. The fourth one is, a, is ostensibly like revealing more about Elise's background. But it just comes across like another kind of disposable adventure. Reasonably fun to watch, sure, mm. but not very grounded. And in fact, the thing that frustrates me about chapters three, four, and now five is that Insidious Chapter 2 ended on a cliffhanger. It ended with Specs, Tucker, and Elise, who is now a ghost but is still working with them. And how adorable is that premise? And why didn't we get to follow up with their adventures with Ghost Elise? Like, that's such a great idea. Why did we only have prequels after that? But it ended with them doing another house call. Some mysterious haunting shit is going down. And Specs and Tucker open the door. They introduce themselves. And Elise just walks in because Elise is a ghost. And then Elise sees something off camera that even as a ghost terrifies her. And the music swells. And then there's the credits. We still don't know what happened to that. 
It's been three movies, and although there's some hints about Specs and Tucker and Elise in The Red Door, it's all about Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne's family again. They never explicitly say what the hell happened after that. And frankly, I'm still kind of annoyed. I wouldn't be annoyed if they just never made any more, but they keep making them. How do you do this? How do you do this to us? Imagine if they made another Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Imagine if they made three more Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verses and they still never resolved the cliffhanger from across the Spider-Verse. Oh, God. What the shit? How could you do that? That movie already drives me crazy because it doesn't conclude in a way that was satisfying to me. It's like, no, you're getting at something and you didn't say it. I have to wait for the next movie to know if this one was any good. Uh, But... We're finally to the fifth Insidious, mm-hmm. Insidious 5. Insidious the Red Door, because there's so many red doors in horror movies. This one's directed by Patrick Wilson. It's mm-hmm. his first feature as a director, uh, and we're catching up with his family again, That his yeah. character, Rose Byrne. Uh, and, it's been nine uh, years, what, and if you were... Recall- um, Ty Simpkins is yeah. the, the name of the young actor. He was the boy in the first one. Yeah, brought him he's, back. He's in his 20s now, and they brought him back for this and, one. And still very, very uh, talented, and, and, just as, and this is the very first scene in the movie. Mm. It's the ending of Insidious Chapter 2, but if you're going to see The Red Door, they're going to spoil it for you right away. That original storyline ended with everyone deciding that it was best to save everyone's lives by hypnotizing all of the members of the family who could astral project into forgetting that they could do that and forgetting any of it ever happened. Anything to do with ghosts. Yeah. Uh, Only because, Rose Byrne uh, knows. It's it because uh, it, it's actually that sort of like Buddhist thought forms thing where if you have thoughts, yeah. it attracts other thoughts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, if, even if you think about the further, the ghosts might hear that. Exactly. So, yeah, they uh, Patrick Wilson and Ty Simpkins are hypnotized and their memories are erased. Uh, an entire year has gone from their lives. Yeah. Uh, and so fast forward. Uh, nine years later. Nine. Yeah. The, uh, the kid is now going off to college. Yeah. He's going off to art school. I love this detail. Because uh, you see this in horror movies all the time where the mm-hmm. little kid sees a monster. Mm-hmm. And rather than say to their their uh, their parents, they just start screaming, holy shit, mom, dad, I saw a mo-, Like, I really yeah. saw a monster. I'm not going to shut up about this monster because I saw a lot of it. It's like, oh, no, it's just your imagination. No, seriously, mom, dad. <laughs> The ah, fucking monster. I know the difference between yeah. imagining something and actually seeing yeah. it, which is so, why I've said before, I'll say it again. If I ever have a kid and that kid says there's a monster under their bed or in their closet, we just move. Yeah. That's yeah. it. We're done. So it, it in the movies, the kids uh, manifested by drawing pictures of it. There's always the creepy kid yeah. crayon drawing. That's also going to be in the horror movie review later this week. Oh, God. Yeah. See, it's a lot it's, of cliches. It's a cliche. Yeah. And, uh, but I like that this has now extrapolated itself into an art career. Yeah. Uh, Ty Simpkins used to draw those creepy drawings. Now he's going to art school where he can draw creepy drawings and become a better artist who does creepy drawings. Yeah, he even studies, uh, a, he even studies a Goya painting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a Jupiter reading. Saturnine Saturn 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know Saturnine Sun. It's um, one of the most famous scary paintings ever. It's really yeah, creepy. Um, so yeah, he's going off to school. He and his dad are estranged. Uh, the parents have split up, and it's because since the uh, hypnotism, Patrick Wilson's brain is a little bit. F- he says he has brain fog a lot. Like he can't yeah. concentrate. He has he's not, trouble with his yeah. memory. He's detached from his family. It's a, um, he's estranged from his son now. Yeah, he tries to bond with him by driving him to school, and when he drops his son off, they get into a big fight. So yeah, it just really, nothing's been solved. Really shitty one too. Yeah. So. uh the kid is now at college. He has uh, a, a plucky roommate who mm. is uh, 
essentially there to absorb exposition. Poor character. Yeah, it's uh, kind of it's it, uh, an actor who who plays Chris. Yeah, the, the, the character is named Chris. Let me look up yeah, the actor. And I like her um, a lot. Um, uh, Sinclair Daniel plays Chris. Yeah, Sinclair and, uh, Daniel, very very talented. I like them a lot. No, she, she, Underwritten character. She gets to be like very cool and funny hmm. and have no desires or interests of her own. She is there to be swept up in someone else's yeah, adventure. Yeah. So to a, to a weird degree to be okay with it. Mm. Like seriously. Back the fuck off, because you fell into the supernatural realm really, really fast, and you have no reason to stay. Uh, something that really bugs me about a lot of college films is how little we see the kids in class. They, yeah. they go to parties. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's uh, part of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very small part. Studying is the bulk of it. I appreciate I, that, like, there's, there's the dad says, hey, go to one frat party for yeah. me. I was in a frat. I know you wouldn't like it, but go to a party. Yeah, and as, so the, as, as, as a favor. The yeah. first week, like, before college... That's a party week. Mm. There are parties. After that, I'm not going to go to a fucking party. Yeah. I went to one frat party once. I'm sorry? Yeah, me too. I, I nev- I've never been to a frat party. It was a waste party. of fucking time. I, uh, I had I, no interest. I wanted to kind of game the system when I was in yeah. uh, when I was in college. There were you know, the recruiters. You join a fraternity. You join a sorority. And mm. I, uh, because my first name is Whitney... Mm. And nobody bothered, to, and there were so many women going to the college named Whitney. I figured uh-huh. I'll try joining a sorority, see if I can get in, mm. just to see if like I can trick them. Like I, I had no Whitney. designs to join a sorority. I wasn't going to to see how far you could get into that process. Exactly. I want, yeah, yeah, just just curious to see if I could yeah. game the system. I'm sure, and, you're not the first dude to try to do that. Although oh, usually, sure I imagine mostly it was in a Revenge of the Nerds, very yeah. shitty, salacious way. Oh yeah, I'm going to be yeah. live with all the girls. Tee No, it wasn't like that. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I never got a call back. No, it was an intellectual <laughs> exercise. I, I didn't want to yeah. join a fraternity either. Uh, I was I, I was a theater kid. Yeah. I wanted to be in the theater. And by the way, I know people. Uh, who, I, I want to make it clear here because I, I know people who have had very positive experiences in sororities or fraternities. Oh, yeah. I'm not decrying it in a in that kind of way. I just know from my own personal experience, knowing who I am, I would have hated every second of yeah, it. The, it's the, not for me. The, the 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 Greek system has a very fraught path. That's also um, true, yes. But so anyway. my, my, my problem is that we don't see enough of the college uh, yeah. when, when Ty Simpkins is at college. I do but appreciate that he, the exciting uh, incident is him in class and his teacher actually trying to say, like, I want you to go down deep into your subconscious. Mm-hmm. I want you to find the most painful memory you can find. And go like, further. Uh, yeah, and I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, like, <laughs> then just throw it up. On, and that's kind of unlocks the memories. It starts yeah. to come back. And... Um, Patrick Wilson, meanwhile, he's like, I got to figure out what's wrong with my brain. He gets like MRI scans. And while he does this, just things start coming back to him. There's a very creepy MRI sequence. The MRI sequence is pretty cool. The MRIs are terrifying uh, enough as they are, uh, just in principle, because who knows and, uh, what they could find. But like, they've managed a way to make it even and worse. He, and he begins seeing like this yeah. one ghost, keep, like this guy in an orange shirt, keeps yeah. on appearing to him. And we get to find out who that is yeah. later in the movie. Uh, and, and like how, how it's connected to him personally. Uh, meanwhile, yeah, uh, Ty Simpkins with these memories are coming back for both mm. of them. Wouldn't you know it? The the, de- the demons, the old demons, start coming back as well. Mm. They find that they can astrally project again. The, start, the demons start following them back. Um, the story again, not so interesting. Not uh, not on its surface. No. Patrick Wilson, however, uh, doesn't have the same kind of like noisy flair as the filmmakers from those first couple of movies. He's not operatic. Uh, in fact, he is, because he's an actor, he's focusing a little bit more on character moments, moments where characters mm. get to be afraid, which means he's slowing down a lot of the scenes. And I appreciate this. 
he's quieting them down. Mm-hmm. There are long portions of this movie that don't have any music. Mm-hmm. They're just sort of quiet rooms where people are just kind of walking around preparing stuff. Mm-hmm. Little incidental moments that add to a lot of texture to um, a movie like and, this. And I think and what I love about him is that he's actually, I think he's very talented. I think he's, he's proving himself very capable behind the camera here. That approach also affects some of the jump scares. And there's some jumpy scares, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My favorite scare well, in the I, movie, I, I, I got startled, like, four or five times. There's some good jump oh, scares. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's well done. But, like, it's it's not like James Wan's trying to pull, like, his, like, kind of Sam Raimi kind of energy. Just constantly getting you. Yeah. Like, there's, my favorite scare in the movie is uh, there's a scene where Patrick Wilson is looking at his phone... And the the camera uh, focal length is very shallow, so the things behind him are very out of focus. And if you're not paying attention, you might not even notice, but if you look carefully, you can see, like, way off in the distance, like, it follows. Just some out of focus thing to start coming towards him. Uh-huh. Slowly. Mm-hmm. Very, very slowly. It still can't, it might not even be a person, and my, my mind's playing play tricks up. I think, a, I think, the the obvious temptation would be to let that mysterious figure come close mm-hmm. and then maybe vanish and then leap in through the window yeah. or do something truly terrifying. Patrick Wilson lets that figure like keep coming up closer, coming up closer, coming up closer, and then just lets the scene end. Yeah. We don't get that jump scare. That's actually creepier. That that's yeah. That's that's Insidious, not insidious. That's might not say. giving yeah. us exactly. That's not giving us the sense of cathartic release that a lot of jump scares are designed to do. That's they're there to let let tension peak and then dissipate so that we can build tension anew. I appreciate that level of subtlety. There's not a there's it's not a, an especially subtle movie in a lot of ways. There's a scene where someone gets puked on by a ghost. <laughs> But um, I and, appreci- and ghost puke is the worst puke. I think we've learned that. We learned that from it, chapter two. Uh, we learned that from. Um... There's some other movie. I really yeah. thought I'd, I really thought I'd, <laughs> I started <laughs> the sentence thinking uh, I'll remember it by the end of the sentence, and now I'm here and I look like an asshole. Uh, can't help you here. I'm sorry. That's fine. But the ghost puke is bad. Um, but basically, what what this movie ultimately amounts to is we're going to focus on the Patrick Wilson, Roseburn, uh, Ty Simpkins family. We're going to resolve their story because, in a very Ralph breaks the internet kind of way, I think I don't know if it was Patrick Wilson or uh, uh, Lee Whannell or any of the other writers. Um, I think at some point they probably realized that concluding their story by repressing memories mm-hmm. isn't a very positive ending. That doesn't have to be, but it was made out to be. Like, they could have just had it be a real tragic thing. But instead, it was like, and now everything's going to be okay because we repressed our memories and we're never going to talk about our trauma, right? <laughs> and I think the Red Door is basically realizing that that would have long-term consequences. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see those long-term consequences. We're going to see all the old horrors come back, creep into their lives. But this time, we're going to find a different way to resolve that. And that's the whole raison d'etre for the film, Hmm. is to find some other way to deal with the problem rather than just hypnotizing it back into existence. uh, Back out of existence. I admire that. I think that's a a smart play. 
I think it allows us to be more deeply connected to the characters than we might otherwise be. Certainly more deeply connected than I was in chapters three and four. Um, I think it allows for better drama, more subtlety, better performances overall, uh, because those uh, stories are actually connected to something uh, very real, very, yeah. very emotionally real, unlike just the sort of plot-centric third and fourth films, or the tell and the second. Um, so yeah, even though it, it doesn't quite have the sort of carnival thrill ride quality I really liked in two or even one, I really quite liked this overall. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's solid. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not extraordinary. I don't think it's no. reinventing the wheel. I think um, it's just a, a kind of a, a sign that uh, Patrick Wilson is, is a pretty good director Very of these horror movies. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to see him direct more. Uh, and yes, it, it is about sort of uh, something real, something emotional that a human being might actually understand. But yeah. at the same time, it does revisit a lot of themes that are really common in horror right now. Sure. Inter intergenerational trauma, mm -hmm. family dynamics. Every haunted house story, the ghost is about something. And because ghosts yeah. tend to haunt houses, what's in a house? A family, typically. Usually, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, A lot of ghosts tend to represent some sort of familial disease. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, as such, they if you watch a lot of them, they start to feel a little bit samey unless they're doing something super stylish. I think that's true for and, uh, most like horror genres. After a while, they sort of like coalesce and gel yeah. into something pretty familiar. Yeah, which so, is a danger. You want to so you want to mix it up after a while. It, yeah. It's not reinventing the wheel, and it does start to feel not, not generic, but you know expected. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like the only things that it has are like the little stylish bits and rather than go for the carnival mm -hmm. thrill ride, it goes for something a little bit more grounded and yeah. I think it functions perfectly well, yeah. but I don't want to oversell it. No, no, no. Uh, I don't want to say it's, it it's like a horror, a new horror classic or anything, but it's, it's good for, you know, part five in a ghost series. Yeah. No, seriously for a yeah. part five in insidious, I'm actually surprised it still has this much juice in it. Mm. Uh, and that's not just because of the puke scene. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I was very, very pleased with it overall and this is something from someone who honestly even even though i kind of like insidious 2 for the most part this series i could take it or leave it uh -huh. like i'm not i'm very dispassionate about it the only thing i'm passionate about is wanting to see specs tucker and ghost elise and they've <laughs> never done it why Spe that was uh, what i was excited about specs tucker and elise do have cameos in this one they do. Uh, like they, they show do. up but, to, it, but in a very like, in very like unobtrusive way. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very unobtrusive. They're, it's not about them. I think if they brought them in, they would just have a different energy. Yeah. That's what they do. They bring in a more comedic energy. And I, and I like those characters. I would love to see... I don't understand why that's not a TV show. <laughs> like, at the very least, you'd think that, like, like, whatever streamer... Whatever studio owns this has a streamer, they would want, like, a six-episode weekly Specs and Tucker adventure. These are, these are universal. It'd be Peacock. Yeah, it, Peacock. Yeah. But, like, seriously, Peacock. Lee Winnell, Angus Sampson, Lynn Shay, the series, like yeah. just just a six episode horror anthology series with them just solving a different supernatural thing every week. Yeah, that writes itself. <laughs> It'd be fun. It'd That's be so fun. obvious. I would watch that. Like, why mm -hmm. are we doing that? For God's sake! And then let the Patrick Wilson start. Like, whatever. One last thought: the lipstick face demon mm. returns. I give no shits about the lipstick face demon. Everyone oh, always treats him like a big deal because he had that one big jump scare in the original everyone liked. It's just a scary looking monster. It just That's looks fine, like Darth yeah. Maul and I don't understand. 
I mean, I guess lipstick's I mean, fine. They don't, I don't they know. Don't, they don't I'm make not a, scared by lipstick. They don't make a deal of it. Like, we don't delve into yeah. its origin. Or, or, that's the one I remember. There's nothing like that. It's yeah. just the same. It happens to be the same one. I think it's fine. I guess it's fine. Maybe it's know. a different I, demon that just looks the it, same. It, it, they're just trying to make the lipstick face demon happen. And I've just never been convinced that he has. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's fine. It's not a big deal. I, I, I have no issues with the lipstick face yeah. demon. All right. Uh, there's only one other movie we saw this week that we both saw. Okay. Uh, so why don't we just get into that? Okay, well, uh, what a, was it? It was a new documentary from Alex Winters. Oh, yeah, Alex Winter. Oh, Alex Winter. Uh, I always do that wrong. Yeah, yeah Alex, Alex Winter, what an interesting dude. Um, I know, right? Uh, in 1989, when I was a kid, I saw him in the film Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, as a lot of people know him. Uh, that's kind of the thing that sort of put him on the map first, back mm-hmm. in the late 80s. And and, and and the Lost Boys, although he had a smaller role in it. And the, yeah, and he was in the film The Lost Boys. Uh, he played Bill of Bill and Ted. Uh, mm-hmm. I loved that movie when I was a kid. Same. I thought it was a you know, wilder. It's a time travel movie about surfer dudes from San Dimas, California, mm-hmm. who go back in time to collect uh, historical figures to pass a history test because if they don't, they'll be separated. And if they're separated, they can't form their band. And if they don't form their band, then the f- future of humanity is at risk. I know. So time travelers have to give them a time machine. It's a weird pitch. And this is actually a great thing to bring up because. Um, the studio had no confidence in it whatsoever. It kept it's getting weird. pushed back. It's a weird idea. It's a, yeah. it's a weird pitch. It's hard sell. And they seriously, they kept pushing it back. And it's the sort of thing that today they might have just scuttled altogether. Mm-hmm. Instead, they just, they finally put it out and it was a monster success. Yeah. People just loved the, there's sweet characters. There's one moment where there's they like use a, a, They use a slur. They it's use a, a slur. Dated, and and yeah. they've even apologized for that. They're like, that was the time and we feel bad about it. That mm-hmm. doesn't have any place in the movie. But, it's only one little tiny moment in an otherwise very sweet and innocent yeah. film. And, and it's I, creative. I, I, it teaches this. history. I, I, <laughs> I learned about history from that. I mean, I at, least, I at least became more interested in history. I'll say that. I'm going to posit this. Um, Alex Winter played Bill and Keanu Reeves played Ted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Alex Winter is the reason that movie works. Keanu Reeves is fine. Mm-hmm. Because he can play that character mm-hmm. and just that character. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay, that's a little hard. Okay, he can play... One other character. You can play Steely and Determined, it turns out. Yeah, pretty much. You can play Steely and Determined and the opposite of Steely and Determined. And and laid back surfer guy. And and I didn't see that movie he was in uh, where he had a cameo, like he went on a date with somebody and like he just wept. Um... Oh, uh, it was, uh, oh, the, um... Uh, I forgot the title of that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's I actually heard, a very funny movie. It was really quite funny in that movie. Yeah, um, um, Always Be My Maybe. Always Be My Maybe. He's very yeah. funny, Cam. I will also go to bat for Keanu Reeves in the... It's sad, I don't even think it's been available for a long time, but the Kevin Klein comedy, I Love You to Death, where oh, he plays yeah. an assassin along with William Hurd, and they're just complete fuck-up stoners. <laughs> and it's just, they're so bad at their job. He's hilarious yeah. in that movie. Ke- Ke- Keanu, like, he has, yeah. he brings a, an attitude of vibe, but yeah. I think, like, Alex Winter is the one, like, acting through that one. Like, he's yeah. actually bringing a lot of character and, and agency to that movie. Yeah. Um, there was a sequel to that one. Then and That uh, sequel's very clever. I it's a very see, unusual uh, movie. I didn't see it until years later in college when it was on home video, but he directed a really strange movie in 1983 <sighs> called Freaked. I think uh, he co-directed that one. He co-directed that with a, yeah. a guy named um, uh, Tom Stern. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Alex Winter and Tom Stern co-directed this movie together. Um, and and it, it's a vomitorium of rubber monster effects. Yeah. It is glory. Behold, freak. It's got fantastic. Uh, it's Screaming Mad George did the makeup. Yeah. So you know it's the most incredible makeup you've ever seen. It's like weird stop motion effects. Yeah. and yeah, the, the silliest damn jokes you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, it's like... Zucker Brothers slapstick comedy with all these weird monster effects in it. I, I would put it on a, a 
like a triple bill with like Gremlins two and Basket Case two. Like yeah. it's just a lot of w- weird, w- wonderful rubber monsters. Uh, that's is, that's my, that's my vibe. Freak is a great movie for if you want to like. St- I, I don't want to gatekeep, but like if you if you meet someone and they know the movie Freaked and they like it, uh-huh. you're already friends. And in <laughs> fact, that's one of the things that got me to, to like you in the first place to, oh, when we, we first started talking. Because we like Freaked. Because Freaked was like even more obscure at the time. And yeah, yeah, because yeah, like it was still like a, yeah, it's had like revival screenings now, yeah. and it's it's pretty well known at this it, point. It's a reasonably well known cult film. Mm. Still not super famous, but. Yeah, at the time, if you liked Freaks, you were you you were in. You had your finger on the pulse of coolness. Um, yeah, he, uh, Alex Winter was doing a lot of weird comedy. He did a show on MTV called The Idiot Box, and Freaked mm. is like the movie version of The Idiot Box. Yeah. Um, a couple of years later, he did this really like very serious downbeat noir film called Fever, mm. which he wanted to stage like a play. So there's a lot of wide angles, and he huh. just like wanted to sort of experiment with. Uh, Never saw uh, that. Yeah, sort of like acting. I I, I did huh. watch Fever, thinking it's like, oh, he did Freaks, this wild rubbery comedy, and this is like completely on the opposite end of the spectrum. He's trying something completely different. Uh, I think he goes a little too downbeat. It actually starts to become really lugubrious after a while. Yeah. But you know, I saw it. It's pretty good. Um, huh. Yeah, it totally slipped by me. That's and so then to watch that. Then something happened where he became very very interested in internet culture. Yeah. Uh, and as a director, he moved away from making fictional, like, scripted features and started making documentary films. Yeah, this is in the uh, two, in, 2010s. That's when it became its focus, yeah. Yeah, and in 2012, he made a film called Downloader, which is all about Napster. Yeah. Uh, he was really interested in Napster. Um, he t- uh, way, As long ago as 2015, he made a film about Bitcoin and sort of its its dangers. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's kind of gone back and gone back. He made a block show, uh, blockchain movie. His most recent film before this one was a documentary about Frank Zappa. He's just a big Frank Zappa mm. fan. Um, it's a little bit hero-worshipy, the Frank Zappa film. I think it's not really critical of like some of Frank Zappa's bigger flaws, but it does understand who he was as an artist, and it gets a lot yeah. of... And there's a lot of Zappa fans out there, so there's a lot of famous people in the movie. And uh, here he is trying to unpack YouTube. Mm. Uh, and he goes into sort of the history, how it came uh, came to be, as technology was evolving, streaming technology started to become available after a while. And I think YouTube launched in 2008, if I recall. Uh, around uh, there, yeah. And yeah, I talked a little bit about uh, sort of what led to YouTube and sort of the earliest videos, people just sort of having fun. And they were talking about why it uploading your own videos was appealing. Um, it almost seems self-evident. You're sharing your own video content mm. online. Well, it's worth it's uh, worth noting that a lot of it was tech-based, and like mm. there was a time when before we had reasonable Wi-Fi or other mm. sort of high-speed internet, that was just not practical. Yeah, that was not possible. And well, then finally, mm. became kind of like consumer tech and internet tech met, mm. and it became easy enough for people to create videos and post them on the internet, and download them or stream them on the internet. Yeah. And that's where the sweet spot... In fact, didn't... It, here's the thing with this movie, though. You saw this very recently. I actually saw this last year at a festival. Okay. So your memory's going to be more... Uh, more um, Sharper, attuned. Yeah. yeah. Um, but didn't it start as... Like, the idea was we were going to do, like, a video version of, like, Hot or Not? Yeah, well, Hot, hot or... It's kind of astonishing how big Hot or Not was because that also launched Facebook yeah. as, as detailed in the film The Social Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, Hot or Not was a website started by some creeps in, <laughs> yeah, uh, in, yeah. in, uh, at, at Harvard and 
I think it was Harvard. And um, it was wherever the social network was. <laughs> yeah, but pretty sure it was Harvard. Yeah. And, uh, and the idea was let's post photos of people, college yeah. kids that yeah. you know, are classmates. Uh, you could post yourself if you wanted to, but, yeah. or you could post somebody else without their permission. Yeah. Hence, hence it was kind of creepy. And you would just vote thumbs up, thumbs down. Are they hot or are they not? Yep. That was it. And that, mm-hmm. that was really, really popular. And that's kind of what got online networking started yeah. as we know it today. And YouTube was basically, what if we had videos and you could either like or not like them? Yeah. And people started to upload to that. And some people were just had a good personality, had some clever ideas, found a bit of an audience, and it started to seem like a bit of a fad. And then before very long, Google bought it. Mm. And Google, and this is something that is hard to even fathom now, everyone said they were idiots. And everyone they, they, said it was yeah. a terrible investment. And it they would said never they, work. Uh, and they, people said they overpaid for it because they yeah. bought it for like $1.6 billion. It was a huge amount of money at the yeah. time. Uh, and they immediately monetized it. It continued to grow. It became yeah. really, really uh, gigantic. Uh they don't cover this enough in the documentary about mm. how people can make a living on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I the wish they had gone into the actual that, yeah. like details of it, because I know that if you post a video on YouTube, mm-hmm. there's advertisers on there now. So Google yeah. is getting a lot of advertising dollars that they're putting on any video. And there's trillions of videos on there. And sometimes in, uh, in ridiculous ways, like I'll mm. watch like a 30 second clip that has an ad in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Like, jeez, come just, on. They're just trying to cut in whatever advertising revenue they can. Yeah. If you post a video and it gets literally millions and millions of views, YouTube will send you some of that money. But I don't know how it works. They don't yeah. cover that in the documentary. The, the, one of the biggest um, issues with the YouTube effect is that YouTube isn't just an interesting business. It is so multifaceted in the way that it runs and the historical impact it has already had in its relatively brief history and its social impact that frankly, this like ninety nine minute documentary could have easily been three hours. Oh, this, I, without this running out of material, this could have been like a six hour miniseries. It, 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 that's um, honestly my biggest critique is that there's so much more it could have covered. Yeah, and and in fact, if you've been paying attention to the way online outlets work for the last decade, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of this is not going to be new information to you. It's yeah. going to be just rehashing a lot of the stuff you know. It's still fascinating. It's still kind mm-hmm. of shocking, and the idea that going on YouTube and uh, having to interact with their uh, recommendation algorithm yeah. has been a, something that's been eroding the soul of humanity. Yeah. Because what it does is uh, thrive on clicks, and Twitter does this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in in order and not to, just the site, but the people posting to yeah, it. So well. Yeah. So you're going to watch this video, and look at that. There's like six more videos that you might like that some mysterious algorithm is pushing in your direction. Yeah. Now, what are you clicking on? Well, as it turns out. It doesn't necessarily want the things that make you feel good or you enjoy. Mm-hmm. It's just the thing you're going to click on. And it turns out outrage and extreme points of view are going to get yeah. the clicks more often. So that's been encouraged. And then this like cycle began. More people were encouraged mm-hmm. to adopt these more extreme viewpoints. Wouldn't you know it? It's actually encouraging extremism yeah. uh, out in the real world. And all of a sudden people are taking actual violence to the streets because of things that YouTube has been feeding them. I'm trying to remember it's the... Bit, and they talk a lot about how it radicalizes yeah. people. I, there's, there's, I'm trying to remember the... There's actually a number that they give, and I think it's 10%. Mm. It could be wrong, but it's at least 10%. Of, they say 10% of YouTube is now conspiracy theory. Oh, I thought it was higher than that. I it it, was it like feels higher, that. right? Yeah, because but, the algorithm recommends it. Mm. This is the thing that I think who, is... And it's... Yeah. And, and I, I understand why. And, sure. Um, I'm reminded of uh, this old um, hoax 
that was played prior to War of the Worlds, like decades prior to War of the mm-hmm. Worlds, uh, called the Knox Riots hoax. And uh, this, uh, oh yeah, I remember j- this joking uh, clergyman, this minister, decided to uh, tell a fake story uh, in the style of a newscast. Mm-hmm. But if you think of the way radios were back then, people were very isolated and they were listening on headphones. Mm-hmm. They weren't like the big dials in the living room yet. So you're listening to this thing. It sounds like a real broadcast. This guy's telling a hoax, and everybody thinks that uh, there's a riot going on in London and people are being murdered. And this and this happened uh, with the War of the Worlds as well. Mm. And the thing is, is that the, if you miss the beginning mm. where they set up that this is fake, you're just catching it in the middle. Yeah, it sounds which real. is what happened with War of the Worlds. Exactly, yeah. the War of the Worlds. They they flat out say at the beginning it's a radio drama, but if you miss that ten seconds, mm. you well, wouldn't uh, know. As it turns out, uh, um, it was um, Edgar Bergen and Shirley McCarthy were on the next station over, uh-huh. and that was more popular than Orson Welles. Yeah, so we so were listening to the comedy bit at the beginning, and then the way they structured Edgar Bergen and Shirley McCarthy is they have like the opening monologue, essentially, and uh-huh. then they have a musical number. People didn't listen to the musical number. They, just, they changed the channel for the musical number, so they changed it over to Orson Welles, and he's in the middle of this fake news broadcast. They thought it was real. Yeah. Um, and in fact, part of the conceit of War of the Worlds was... Uh, he incorporated in like a musical act. Mm. So it's like they switched over and it's almost like they didn't switch over. It's like yeah. Edgar Bergen was almost cut into it. Like that was the effect it had. Yeah. Um, so you go to YouTube, same sort of thing. You're at home, you're alone, you're in a dark room, you're looking at a laptop and the video you're watching is somebody just talking right at you. They're looking right at a camera mm-hmm. and they're speaking with utter authority. Uh, they're full of shit, but they're speaking with authority. Mm-hmm. So, you're having this weird sort of, they call it a parasocial connection. Yeah. You, they feel like they're your friend. Yeah. And those sorts of paranormal, paranormal, parasocial (laughs) connections are the things that are, uh, very dangerous are, are the things that are radicalizing people. Yeah. Yeah. That person really, really understands what they're talking about. Yeah. And, and and that person speaks for me. That person gets me. The person cares about what I care about. Yeah. And you start uh, creating this, it starts becoming not just a thing you heard once and becoming something that's part of your identity. mm. And that's the, and that's the fucking thing. And the thing that I think is really, um, there's, there's two levels of connections that this movie outlines very, very clearly. One is the capitalism to fascism pipeline, mm. where YouTube started off as, we post stuff, people like it. Google bought it. Google didn't just monetize it by adding ads. They monetized it by incentivizing creators to try to get more clicks in order for them to get more money. And the most effective way to get more clicks was to be more extreme. Yeah. Ergo, it became a place for extremism. Then the algorithm kicks in, and the algorithm is recommending whatever is getting the most clicks. And it doesn't take very long to go from, um, I'm depressed and I want to see something kind of likable, or I'm looking for some self-help. I want to see a kitten. (laughs) I want to see a kitten, I want to see something cute, and like, oh, like if you're feeling sad, here's this. And now, oh, if you're feeling sad, here's who to blame. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're only a couple of clicks away from being potentially radicalized. And so the capitalism, the fascism pipeline is really, really scary. But also, just the way that that kind of toxic parasocial, I can convince you of anything, mm. stems from casual, passive consumption, mm. is really, really scary. Yeah, and... It comes to some pretty bleak conclusions, yeah. and uh, there's a uh, there have been many efforts by just ordinary citizens to try to get uh, YouTube and Google 
to stop that model, to stop that sort of advertising mm-hmm. model that where it's you know pushing extreme points of view. And they have no incentive to do so, so nothing's yeah. been done. There's like one like executive at Google who's like in charge of YouTube who does like a bunch mm-hmm. of interviews in it, and her whole thing is it makes money. Yeah, that the, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stop. Make money. It. Yeah, you know, I hate that. I hate that. And the, your and job talk, is not yeah. to make money. Everyone's job makes money. <clears throat> That's not the job. Your job yeah, is to make so, money by providing a service, and that service should be. Uh, good and responsible the, uh, Alex Winter talks to this one guy who's trying to get some legal actions like yeah we had like this little teeny tiny hair of legal forward but it's not precedent it's not going to stop this thing yeah. um, so that he tries to end the movie on this like positive note but it, it feels like too little too late Yeah. something I did appreciate is he does take a very brief they talk to Ryan of Ryan's World oh, yeah. um, who's the a early, kid who, early YouTuber, a, a YouTube kid, star yeah. who just a young kid. He was like five or six. He was a little mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. And his mom would get him toys and he'd open them up and he's just really excited. He's just yeah. a happy kid. And, um, I'm glad they talked to the parents cause they're, they said, you know, we know he's like an internet celebrity. We're getting a lot mm-hmm. of like, he's sending contracts and making his own toy products now, mm-hmm. but we're trying to let him have like an ordinary childhood as much as we can. And under the circumstances, yeah. given that he's like a child star and, Alex Winter was a child star. He's yeah. made a documentary about child stars as well. That's another one of his movies. So I, I think he was really keenly interested on that. They could have spent a whole episode mm. like of a miniseries on just that kid. Yeah. Um, well, they also talk about how like but, uh, you know kids' media on YouTube is well, more popular than people realize. And I was but it's get also to easy it. to warp. Well, I was going to get to that because um, I have a I have a child who's eight. So we got mm. to experience the wonders of toddler YouTube. How weird it is. Yeah, I saw a few oh. videos as well. Yeah, it's like was... a truck goes into another truck and emerges as a different colored truck. Yeah, like and then a... a mysterious disembodied voice yells, Yellow! Yeah. And I'm like, I. It's like, this uh, is the back rooms? This is some weird. I don't it's, know. It's like this. And it's all CGI animated. It's like yeah. a big slide and, and it's like empty white space and it like has a rainbow along it. And a, yeah. a truck goes down each color, goes into a little yeah. pool at the bottom, changes color. A voice is pink. It, it feels like uh, the sort of thing you you would like see Cheech and Chong watching in a movie. Yeah. yeah. You know, then we're just like, and oh, okay, weird. And it's all the same like uh, tinkly yeah. public domain music. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I were convinced these things were somehow being produced automatically. Like there wasn't an, an animator making these things. I mean, maybe. And, and Depending also how AI each, is going. Maybe. Yeah. And each one of these things had like billions of views, yeah. like a lot of views. And so we suspected computers were driving up the view count because they were scanning for like content mm-hmm. to recreate and making other toddler videos. We're, and what happens is I'm not sure if this is like some prankster going in and adding violence on purpose uh-huh. or an algorithm misunderstanding something mm-hmm. like uh, kids like videos about uh, babies. Let's have babies. That's really cool. They also like Elsa, Elsa. They like Elsa. So somehow that like gets twisted in the algorithm. Oh, they want to see Elsa giving birth. So we're going to have mm-hmm. a Elsa giving birth video. Or, and they or also committing like, acts of violence. Or yeah. Something they also like, like yeah. a Spider-Man and fights. So like Spider-Man, takes the baby and buries it it's like what the yeah. fuck is happening well, i think i think i think that's all, part of people are just trying to get clicks because yeah. they're doing something uh uh subversive in their heads or just gross in a very spike in mics twisted animation no. kind of way but the youtube algorithm isn't sophisticated and it can throw that in there with the other recommendations for kids and that's not great <laughs> It's not great at all. So, again, the YouTube effect... Again, a lot of people don't need to be told this. 
But if you want it laid out succinctly mm. in terms of just for you or someone else, or if you want to be able to like, because there's so much to keep in your head all at once. If you just want it like really succinct, it's very nicely done. Here's how it started. Here's what went wrong. And here's why everything is fucked. That's the YouTube effect. Yeah. That is a valuable documentary. I'm glad it exists. I wish it was longer. I feel like there's a lot more material it could have covered. But I think Alex Winter approached a gigantic topic, found two or three really important elements he wanted to focus on, chose to focus on those, make that the whole raison d'etre for the thing, and left material, I guess, for others to cover. Yeah. Maybe there's a whole bunch of, like, all the stuff we talked about that was missing is on the cutting room floor. There's like a five-hour cut. He was like, yeah, I can't man. do this. I'd like to see that. I'd rather see the five-hour cut. I would, too. Because there's, there's, there's so yeah. much more to cover here. That's the most disappointing thing about the YouTube exactly. effect. Is, yeah, just, there's there's just, not, just not enough of it. Should be more. Yeah. Should be more. But um, ordinarily, I wish there had been more of it would be kind of a backhanded compliment. Mm. Here, it is the only legit critique. It's just, it's such an important topic. And it's handled with great care. Yeah. Uh, and it's, again, it's all laid out. A complicated issue. Laid out very, very cleanly. I think there should have been more. Yeah. And that's a bit disappointing. But still, very, very good documentary, and I would recommend it yeah, to anybody. I, I think um, there's been a spate of documentaries recently, uh, in addition to the YouTube effect, that have been kind of dissecting the way just online life has been overall pretty bad for us. Yeah. Because uh, we've been we've been living online long enough now that we're starting to get a sense of the consequence of yeah like yeah. How, how that kind of altered the way we think about the world and how yeah. we interact it, with each it's other it's not like brand new and, and we don't um, know yet we can actually track some differences yeah there's the youtube effect um a couple of years ago there was that film feels good man mm-hmm. which was about uh matt fury who created pepe the frog and how pepe the frog this comic character mm-hmm. that he created was eventually sort of co-opted by the right and a big part like not just the right like the ultra-right extremist racist corners and uh, a lot of that movie is about this cesspit of like 4chan mm-hmm. and these uh, like extreme right-wing underground websites where just extremists mm-hmm. and angry young men gather to sort of validate each other um, we had uh, I, was, I wanted to make sure I got the mm-hmm. title right we had Lo and Behold Reveries of the Connected which, World which is a Herzog movie that yeah. was a big one um, a little disjointed covered mm-hmm. a lot of different angles on it but that's a very uh, that's another one that tries to give you like the broad swath it's like here's yeah. how the internet uh, is leading to self-driving cars and why that's the worst thing that could possibly happen here's how relying on the internet is leaving us open to a potential solar flare fiasco that could end all of civilization as we know it in an instant mm. and it's like shit <laughs> thanks <laughs> Werner um there's he talked to some people who were like addicted to online gaming and there's like a detox camp where you go out to the woods where there's no internet signal or no phones or nothing yeah and uh he uh he actually said tell me about your game and actually it's like these are former addicts it's like i can't tell you about my game you know if i start talking about it that's like getting a fix yeah so no the game is behind me now and he even admits to the camera when he's like not interviewing it's like I really wanted to know about like the troll life they lived and like on this online fantasy universe. Um, There there were, there were some documentaries before the recent wave that I think were kind of laying Mm -hmm. the groundwork for it. Uh, There's one that was pretty famous called catfish. Catfish was a good one. Yeah. That Uh, actually created the term catfishing mm -hmm. where you lead someone on online by pretending to be either, either a completely different person or a very different person than you actually are in order to, basically scam people mm. or 
or, or develop yeah. a, a parasocial or relationship. Or develop a parasocial yeah. relationship, yeah. And that uh, was one where I remember uh, when that movie came out, there were the, the directors who went on to direct like narrative features in mm-hmm. Paranormal Activity 3 and that one... Um, that one superhero movie on Netflix with Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, uh, Power Project. Power Project, yeah. Or Pro- um, Project Power. Project Power. Pretty good, actually. Um, but, like, at the time, everyone was, like, they were, like, they said that they did a uh, meeting with some executive who said, I will greenlight the movie you're pitching right now if you admit Catfish was fake. <laughs> if you tell me right now that that was fake, I will give you this project. They're, like, we can't. It's a documentary. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, you reminded me of a movie called uh, We Live in Public, which oh, yeah. came out in the early 2000s, which is a kind of pre-YouTube video was it like 2009? sharing. 2009? Oh, it was 2009. that recent. Yeah. Um, that's a really good movie, though. Yeah. About, uh, the early days of, of of the internet where people were started to voluntarily give up their privacy. Yeah, yeah like yeah. F- filming their real life and putting it online. And I was yeah. like, that was going to be the future and uh, how, how that kind of was bad for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and there was also um, a more recent film called A Glitch in the Matrix, which was about people who lived online and started to believe these conspiracy theories about, like, existential conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. about how the real world was not real. It was a stimulation like in the film The Matrix. Yeah. Um, so there's been this really, really interesting spate of films that the YouTube effect is part of uh, that's really trying to understand where we are as a society thanks to our communication technology and most of these documentaries are coming to the conclusion that we're not in a better place no uh i've been saying there's a there's a really sharp i I remember seeing a graph in one of these movies uh that kind of and i don't know how they gauge this but they're kind of like gauging levels of of happiness versus levels of depression sure and they talk to teenagers and, uh, you know, kind of going back to like these old sociological studies. And the, the line is holding pretty steady for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Typically speaking, happy bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was this dive in happiness, like an, an increase in a depression. And wouldn't you know it, it's at the exact same moments that cell phones became widely available. Mm-hmm. Or smartphones, that is, became yeah. widely available. So, not, not just to be readily available mm-hmm. on the phone, but to have constant access to the internet and social media. Yeah. Uh, and that can't, like I, I know causality causation yeah, it's, instead, it's but, more complicated than that uh, but, but it's yeah also, it, it seems it seems suspicious to me I, i'm actually experienced i've had you know kind of a fraught relationship with social media as well i've had mm-hmm. to take social media breaks oh, because yeah. it was bringing me not only bringing me no joy but bringing me actual anxiety mm-hmm. and i just had it's like you know what i can't be on twitter for like another month i just can't yeah. do it and it was very very helpful when i started doing that what i've actually discovered and i don't want to shill for one particular like new uh social media new site, social yeah. media site but simply switching social media uh-huh. away from twitter and i just by sheer chance i'm on blue sky it could be spoutable it could be you know any one of these spill. Yeah. could be any of them but a smaller community of people who are not all just like desperately trying to get like a big audience by being extreme mm-hmm has made simply being on social media more relaxing. Well, and then I go uh, back to Twitter just every once in a while to check my messages or whatever like that because it's still a way a lot of people connect with me. It's almost stressful. To, to I swear to God, to within two Twitter, minutes, uh, I'll go to Twitter and I was like, oh, I wonder what's going on on Twitter. And already I'm panicking. You're doom-scrolling already. I'm doom-scrolling. Yeah. I, I don't do 
Doom Scroll anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's terrible, and it is, it's it's yeah, it's, it's striking when you when you leave and uh, like yeah. have a similar experience on a different social media site. Yeah, that's like, more positive though. Like you well, know, it can it, be anyway. It, it's you know? social networking. It's so yeah. actual social media. Um, the idea it's not that just about strangers yelling at you. Well, the idea that these social media sites were built to mm. uh, be widespread platforms where you can spread a brand. Yeah, uh, that's something that. Twitter encouraged and all of a sudden people are speaking as if they have the attention of millions. That Mm -hmm. that means they're speaking differently when you're in a smaller social media circle Mm -hmm. and you just want to make stupid jokes. Mm -hmm. So people will chuckle all of a sudden. Hey, look, it's just like a page of stupid jokes. It's kind of fun now. Yeah. And And you go in and you laugh at a few jokes and you go, and and I see people saying things like, Oh, will this be the thing that the new Twitter has got like 70 million signups on threads or whatever. I don't want that anymore. No, I don't want to be a part of the main one. I, want I don't. To be a, I want to be. To, I want to be on a comfortable one over here. And that's if why I we have got to on like. Fa- that's why we got on Facebook to begin with. It was yeah. just like for the kids. Yeah. And, and then the parents like, got on it. I'll occasionally post on the big ones just to like share the links to what we do. But I'm on Twitter a lot less now. Yeah, same. I just it's not fun anymore. Yeah. I'm not, I, I honestly, I'm at the point now where I can't remember when it was. The last time I mean, I mean, I've had positive experiences, and I've met a lot of cool people on Twitter. I've had oh, job totally. opportunities from Twitter. We, we've arranged yeah. interviews on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. It, it can be a good thing, but that doesn't mean it's unilaterally a good thing. And I maintain it is not too late for social media to be a fad. It can die out. It can. You, you, know, you know what predates social media as we know it? Pokemon. It's not as old as Pokemon. Okay? It is not... T- I'm not saying Pokemon is a fad, but what I'm saying is that's not that long. We have not had it so long that we can't unhave it or at the very least wean ourselves off of our dependency on it yeah, and have yeah. a more healthy relationship to it. So, anyway, we're, 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 we're just sort of no, Talking about the, our own shit, but like, it's good it's, that the documentary it's can make something, something that, yeah, YouTube, YouTube effect. This is what out. a documentary should do. It mm-hmm. should make you think about it and talk about it and have conversations and decide how you feel about things. Should I talk about the other documentary film that I saw this week? Do you want to go straight to that? Sure. Sure. Um, I saw a film called Wham. Ah! It's about the band Wham. Ah. Uh, and they even say right at the beginning, oh, um, Wham, you probably know them as George Michael and the other guy. Um... <laughs> Which, is, to be fair, is true. His name is Andrew Ridgely, for goodness sake. And uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't listen to all of his hit singles. No, he, he was... A, in the early days of Wham!, he was actually the mastermind. Sure, and, and, but I'm saying after Wham!, uh, which, by the way, George, sounds, George, like it sounds like a sitcom, like After Mash. After Wham!, uh, yeah. No, uh, you know Wham!, because they were g- giant on the pop music charts mm. in this kind of brief window in the mid 80s yeah, at the uh, very least i'm sure everyone has probably heard at some point in their lives i'd be know. surprised if you hadn't mm. wake me up before you go go yeah you, you know easily wh- their biggest hit you know wham rap you know um yeah. uh, careless whisper you know these songs. careless whisper is pretty good what was the what was the other um uh not everything she wants there was one other song they did i really like and i can't remember it <laughs> i can't tell you what you was like it, monkey was uh was george michael though uh, yeah, I Go think look so. now, there's a monkey no, on your back. Cur- Watch out, baby, uh, who's that? Right. Don't look now, there's a monkey on your back. Watch out, baby, was... who's that? Don't look now. Okay. Um, I, was, what... I was a huge George Michael fan in the early yeah. 90s. I, I got to talk about this movie on KCRW with Christy yeah. Lemire, who went to a Wham! concert in 1983 in a oh. white limousine. <sighs> oh. 
Yeah, she 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 was all about wham. Beautiful. When when I was going to concerts, I was going to see like Metallica and Faith No More. So mm. I, I was outside of like. Uh, I, I went to bands that hated Wham. I'll say that. Um, oh wait, no, I know what their biggest hit was. It wasn't Waiting Before You Go. It was Last Christmas. Last Christmas is one of their biggest. It's become hits. like a you like a Christmas perennial. Like just it is. Yeah, it's so it's, it's it's such a big Christmas song that they made a movie about it. Yeah, and Andrew Ridgely is in the movie. Yeah, um, but yeah, it it this is a documentary film that takes you pretty straight through Wham's uh, heyday. And there's a lot of old interviews that they put in, and there's a lot of sort of more recent interviews. Uh, George Michael passed away a couple of years ago, but yeah, that's a shame. Um, uh, their origin is very interesting because they were uh, sitting next to each other in class. They met in school, Aww, and it was nice. one of those things like you got to change class, you got to change seats in in your classroom, and they changed seats. And it turns out they were sitting next to each other. If that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have Wham today. So they kind of marvel at that. That's nice. And it turns out that they weren't like musicians; they were like funny kids they were the class clowns Mm -hmm. uh george michael and andrew ridgely and they started wearing those short shorts that they became famous for to be kind of like a little bit of a goof like they're trying to be a little bit funny yeah and they started their act like performing because they also liked music and they liked comedy as a comedy troupe wham started as like a variety act where they would sing songs but they were like sort of comedy songs they would tell jokes like that was their original uh, there's a whimsical nature to some of their songs like waking up before you go go is a fun song well, and that was their idea. You know? They they yeah. just like to make fun music. They like yeah. to make pop music. And uh, it's like, and they takes you through some of the technical stuff. And they signed with X and the, here was their producer. And they talk about you know, sort of their chart success. Uh, here, here they did Wham Rap. Here they re-released it. It was more successful re-release, that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, you, you get to, uh, after a while, you get the sense that all they ever really wanted was just to have fun and make music. And lo, they did. Nice. Uh, what the film does, though, is it actually sort of focuses on George Michael's aspirations as a songwriter and, excuse me, and as a producer, because he wrote some of their bigger hits and he wanted to produce their music. And after a while, he started to think that uh, the only way to really sort of validate himself as a pop songwriter was to uh, hit number one on the pop charts, mm, which was... Wham! did. I mean, Wham! was yeah. a huge success. So uh, here's a... a a film about two guys who wanted to make fun music and become pop stars. And they did that. The, Good for them. The end. There's yeah. not like a lot of adversity uh, to the Wham story. It's okay uh, that there isn't. Well, here's, here's the you one know? bit of adversity. And they talked to George Michael about this. A lot of the songs are about the women he's lusting after or the women who sort of turned right. him wrong. Uh, George Michael was gay and yeah. he, he came out to Andrew Ridgely pretty early on. It's like yeah. when they were still pretty young and Andrew Ridgely is like, cool man Andrew originally was totally supportive of this yeah. uh, the, the pressure w- with George Michael was he felt he had to stay in the closet it took yeah, him a long the, time to come out to, pu- yeah. yeah it took him a long time to come out which, which is funny to me because like even when George Michael was considered a heterosexual sex symbol mm. uh, making you know songs like um, what was some of his like uh, big sexy hits it was mm. uh, Freedom, which yeah. had a very sexy music video. Yeah. But the sexy music video was often very focused on his ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember watching it even when I was young and, like, there was less queerness, mm. like, openly in the media and it wasn't as codified who were talking about it as mm. much. 
Um, well, in, on the MTV circles, though, luckily it was. There was a lot of, like, androgynous hair metal bands. That's true. A lot of cross-dressing hair metal bands, like the glam rock scene. That was all about, sort of, fluid sexuality. Very much so, but they still didn't necessarily talk about it in the terms. They didn't just say, mm. like, so this is very queer, right? Like, no, they were just doing well, it a lot of the time. There's a really wonderful interview with David Bowie. Mm. It's well, like, yes, uh, David uh, Bowie. Dave Bowie. Dave, Dave, Kudos to David Bowie for bringing it out, but yes. yes. Some stuffy British television interviewer. It yeah. says here, you said, you're, you said you're bisexual. What does that mean it's like what do you think it means <laughs> I, I have sex with women i also have sex with yeah. men so you're bisexual i said what i said yeah <laughs> it's like, what, what, faith what? was the song i was faith, thinking yeah. faith was a very sexy song. Faith, faith, faith. Oh, yeah, song um but i remember like seeing george michael's videos and just thinking to myself i'm not a hundred percent sure what queer energy is but that's it <laughs> and i and people picked up on sure it. sure enough yeah, when, he, when he eventually uh, uh, uh you know I forget if he came out or was outed. He was outed. He was yeah, outed. Yeah, was there was there was a, a like a public sex scandal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was, I think it was actually in like Beverly Hills, wasn't it? I think it was here in L.A. Yeah, yeah. I remember they. I they're, took like they're, a, they're British. Yeah, like, wham, but yeah, they, yeah, but they, got they, they lived Beverly in Hills. L.A. But uh, but yeah, I remember everyone was just like, we're not shocked. Um, no. But um, but I, George Michael's George Michael was great. Yeah. I like George Michael a lot. I like I like Wham's music a lot. I like George Michael's music a lot. When if you're think? younger, you he know, died in 2016, he was only 53. It was pretty. God, was uh, it really that pretty, recently? Yeah, it was, too. It was really young. Um, the the COVID has thrown my entire sense of time off because 2016 is not that long ago, and it feels so fucking long ago. But um, in any case, uh, if anyone who's listening is like a, maybe a younger listener or maybe uh, listen to a very different type of music and you've never heard wham and you never heard george michael just hear some mm. of the songs that we ta- mentioned already you're gonna have well, so well, much you, fun you don't have to seek them out you've heard them you They're, probably they are, have but they I'm are just saying, that ubiquitous they just sort of leaked into popular culture i have found mm. that there comes a point where thinking that things are ubiquitous in popular culture is not something to take for granted. That's true. There comes a time, it, it might it might not be now, it might be 10 years from now, but there will come a time when you cannot assume anyone has heard Wham. Okay. Anyone has heard George Michael. Uh, it might be now, and if that's the case, seek them out. They're some of the most fun music you've ever heard. It, it's, it's, yeah. it's fun bubblegum. Um, yeah. The only issue I have with this documentary is it just kind of ends. Mm. Uh, it doesn't, I, I wish it sort of had... Because George Michael died in 2016, yeah. uh, they kind of had so solo careers Christmas for a while. Uh, George out. Michael yeah. had a bit of a solo career after yeah. Wham. Uh, they don't really focus on a lot of that. Uh, just they they go up to like George Michael's death, they talk about it, and then the movie's just sort of over. Yeah, it's like there's probably more to this, just like, like the YouTube effect. There's a little bit more to that story. We could have followed mm-hmm. it a little bit more up to the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think what the film does do is capture the essence of Wham. Mm-hmm. And the essence of Wham was, let's listen to fun, silly music and, you know, jump around to this really kind of shallow bubblegum pop. I feel like we're going to get one or both of the following for every reasonably popular musical act. Mm. Either a motion picture, like feature film hagiography, uh-huh. a la Bohemian Rhapsody, or I Want to Dance with Somebody, or whatever, mm. or this documentary. Yeah. And we're going to get one of the. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Well, we just talked about Zappa earlier. We did. Frank Zappa would, had one. Which would you prefer more of? The documentaries, even if they are kind of light mm. and fluffy, or would you rather see. I, I'm trying to think of who even could play a young, like a young George Michael. 
Oh golly! I, I honestly don't no, know. Someone, some, someone dash sexy. So, some of those movies are just insufferable. There's a yeah. movie out there called Daydream Believers, which was a fictionalized version of the monkey's story. Oh, I forgot and, about that. Yeah, yeah, it was a TV movie. Um, yeah. I don't expect, the, the TV actors they movie got. I don't expect much yeah, from the, the actors they fair. got to play the monkeys. Like look almost nothing like the monkey. Yeah. I think they're just they get like a good Nesmith, but the other four and just yeah, the other three. The, are not, the yeah. TV movie biopic is a genre like, and I mean network television, not like HBO mm. on behind the candelabra kind of thing. Like no, no, no. The network television, we're gonna get. Um, oh, who who was Wonder Woman? In the seventies, Linda Carter. Linda Carter. We're gonna get Linda Carter to play like, like Rita Hayworth, and yeah, like for yeah. like for whatever. We're gonna get like uh, uh, Don Johnson to play Elvis for like <laughs> like a very cheap. Well, it's Kurt very... Russell, but okay. No, no, no. Don Johnson played Elvis. Oh, that's right, he did. There were multiple Elvis biopics mm. for television. I've watched a few of them because I did some podcasts mm. with, uh, with other people about them. But yeah, Don Johnson played Elvis in the nineteen seventies. And it was like, oh, (laughs) oh, is it bad? Oh, no, Um, no, 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 no. Here's what I want out of like a a musical story. I want Weird the Al Yankovic story. Yeah, which was great. Where we tell the true story. (laughs) I maintain. The the joke of Weird the Al Yankovic story is it's in itself a parody of musical biopics. Yeah, and and to be fair, Walk Hard got there first and hit a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Weird that the story is pretty damn funny. Oh, it's delightful. I, it, I like I, that movie a lot. I, you liked it a little bit more than I did, but it's still very, very I'm, cute. And I'm, I'm glad I I'm saw a lifelong it. Weird Al fan, so yeah. The one thing that I will give that movie credit for, and I will and I will take this as gospel until the day I die. Weird Al Yankovic wrote Eat It as an original song <laughs> and Michael Jackson wrote Beat It as a parody, as parody. <laughs> and got more popular much in the way that Oreo became more popular than Hydrox. Mm. I will take that as a truth <laughs> till my dying day. I assume that that is true. <laughs> History just doesn't remember. I'd love to see a lot of like biopics told from the perspective of like the onstage persona of the musician. Yeah. Like, uh, wouldn't you love to see the Alice Cooper documentary, but it's like starts in oh. hell and oh, kind of like God, claws yes. his way out. That'd be oh, great. I would love that. Or, yeah. uh, or, or Guar. Well, Guar's made a couple movies about their own origin. Oh, did so, they really? Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize or, they'd done like in character and shit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there's there's a couple okay. movies. Well, you, I, I not, not widely distributed. They're making these things yeah. like in, in their garage I would in Virginia love, somewhere. But... I would love to see someone do a new, like... Kiss and the Phantom of, oh, of that was Phantom of Central Park. Phantom of the Park. Yeah. Phantom of the Park. Kiss and the Phantom of the Park. New Kiss. remake. Remake. Take it Kiss, super Kiss, serious. Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. Yeah. Um, Have Gore Verbinski direct it. Like someone like with a, like a weirdly pronounced <laughs> style. Like someone to take it way too seriously. Would you get Kiss or would you get younger actors? I think he, I think you get younger actors, but you bring Kiss in. Kiss yeah. has to be involved, but you let younger actors play Kiss. Yeah. You know, maybe like you could do like a flashback thing. Mm. Where like now nah, here's what really happened, and now like they're being played by I don't know who's the new hotness Glenn Powell and uh, Glenn and uh, Austin Butler <laughs> yeah like all these like really young hot dudes or whatever and they just like put on the makeup fuck I would fucking love that because uh, sell the legend well Ki- sell the legend and Kiss would sign off on that of course but, they would they, that was the whole point of Kiss well, it was they, showmanship they, they, they sold the fuck out a yes, long time ago and bless them for it. <laughs> Anyway, we're, we're, we need to get move on. we got a lot more yeah. movies to review. Um, 
Let's see. You just did a documentary. I'll tell you about... We got a couple of comedies. I'll tell you about one. You tell me about one. All right. Uh, I saw the new Netflix Happy Madison movie, The Outlaws. I'm so sorry. Happy Madison doesn't give me a lot of hope. No. There haven't been a lot that have responded positively to it. Not lately, that's for sure. And uh, it feels like on Netflix, they've gotten even lazier. Like they just have to try less. I I will go to bat for... I will say this. I will go to bat for Hubie Halloween. Okay, that, Hubie that's Halloween not what I saw. Hubie so. Halloween is legitimately fun. They made, hey, let's make a comedy Halloween movie uh, about a serial killer attacking a small town on Halloween, and only this one dork nobody likes is trying to stop it, and it's really quite funny. A lot of very inventive costumes in it. It's a really solid movie. They can make a good movie. They just choose not to, usually. And it gets to the point where... Like, you give every movie a fair shake, but when you see the Happy Madison logo, you think to yourself, life is very short. Do I want to make it 90 minutes shorter right now? And this is my job. And I've said it before, film criticism, if you're doing it right, is a full contact sport. And I got my head caved in by the outlaws. So... The Outlaws uh, is is a honestly as an elevator pitch, uncomplicated but but I get it. It it I I understand buying it. Uh, it's the if you've ever seen the movie The In Laws, mm-hmm. uh, which is about uh, you know people you, young couple getting married and it turns out one of the in laws uh, the dad is like a CIA agent or something. Right? Am I remembering it correctly? It's been a while mm-hmm. since I've seen it. Um, With Alan Arkin and yeah uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah Alan Arkin's. Uh, 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 oh, golly. <laughs> we have not seen the in-laws uh, in a while they remade it in like the early 2000s with michael douglas uh, michael douglas and albert yeah. brooks um yeah, yeah. One, one, one's just sort of like a, a regular uh, dork, peter falk now peter falk um yeah. yeah one one's a dorky dad the other one's like secretly a spy and yeah. they got into spy shenanigans well this one is basically instead of being the in-laws they're the outlaws and instead of being cool super spies they're bank robbers and uh, the the hero of the film uh, played by Adam Devine, hmm. uh, he's getting married to an act- uh, to a character played by Nina Dobrev, who, if you saw Arrow, was on Arrow for the longest time. Um, he is a dorky, dweeby, nice enough but also extremely socially awkward bank manager. Uh oh. So he's getting married to to Nina Dobrev, and he hasn't met her in laws yet. The marriage is in a week. And it turns out they're going to show up. And they show up. They are played by Ellen Barkin and Pierce Brosnan, which is admittedly good cat. I'm glad they got the paycheck. That's what I'll say. Good for you. Get that paycheck. Um, they're cool. They're sexy. They're fun. They hate the guy that their daughter is marrying because he's just a dork. Um... And sure enough, they get the values these movies espouse. Know, they're just, there's so much hate. There is toward, so much hate. There's this hate toward your fellow human. There's they invite you. <sighs> Here's something I don't like about a lot of these movies. They invite you to hate the protagonist. Well, the, the, and the I think idea that, is I think the, that's, the idea is the protagonists are hateful. Yeah, but I I assume they think the audience hates the same people they do. Well, here's the deal. In this case, uh, Pierce Brosnan and Alan Barkin are not the protagonists. Adam Devine is the protagonist, and he's not hateful. But he's hateable. 
Okay. It's okay to laugh at him. It's okay to want him to be humiliated because he's not cool. And that's a kind of comedy that I think is a thin line because I don't want to feel... You, you run the risk of the jokes making you feel like you're watching someone being bullied. Yeah. And some people, I don't know if they can turn off part of their brain and enjoy that, or if they just think that's funny. I think too many of these Happy Madison films just feel like bullying in general. The Grown Ups movies have this vibe. Uh, that's My Boy is a very bullying movie. Oh, God. It's just, it's just a that, mean-spirited movie. It's, it's a, a mean movie. movie. Yeah. And again, I know that some people's humor is not mine. This isn't that extreme. Uh, but... Uh, Adam Devine, he's the bank manager. They don't like him. They rob his bank. And even though they got masks on, they certain things happen that makes him think that might be his in-laws. And sure enough, uh, his in-laws are, um, they owe like $5 million to this like evil crime boss. And they've got to get it in before uh, the wedding. And the crime boss kidnaps Adam Devine's wife. And now he's got to join them. On all of these heists. As far as a screenwriting pitch goes, good. It's math. High concept, structure is inherent, bada bing. There's a couple of, uh, uh, of amusing sequences in it. I particularly enjoy something I hadn't seen before a car chase through a cemetery where they keep like plowing through all of the cemetery plots right. and even Pierce Brosnan and Ellen Barkin are like oh come on <laughs> have you no sense of decency Adam Devine like it's like that was actually kind of funny like I'll give you that but um no I'm just gonna say no <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I say no, sir. I say, I say no to I your movie. I draw the line. I draw the line. There's your pull quote for you. I, <laughs> I say no. <laughs> I'm reminded of the great Jay Sherman. I think all of every film critic's personal hero, whether they admit it or not, we all say Ebert. We know we mean Jay, Jay Sherman. Sherman. <laughs> Jay Sherman from the animated series, The Critic. Mm. Some of it's aged badly. A lot of it's aged very, very well. But there's this one bit he had where he was like, he won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism mm. by going out and giving a speech that just said, just don't go. You know, the, the, you know it's not going to be the, good. The, just yeah, don't go. The thesis was, if the movie stinks, just don't go. Yeah. Stop supporting them. Mm-hmm. And there's this very casual, oh, I'm just going to put on a Happy Madison movie because it's Netflix. And I think that's really encouraged. That passive, like, yeah. Let's encourage even Happy Madison to get kind of lazy a lot of the time. And like lazier and, and than they, usual. And they were never... Clever, you know. No, they were they never were, clever, were, but the, the we're very not least, talking about what's up, Doc. Like here. I, I will say this for something like even Jack and Jill, which is a terrible motion picture. It had Al Pacino do the Dunkin' Donuts dance and rap. I've seen that part. Right, that part that was hard enough. That part I don't, is I don't hard enough. See, but, I don't hear a movie on other side. But I will that. give them credit for coming up with something that did not exist. That should not exist in a very Cronenbergian kind of way. It's not the body horror, but in the this should not be kind of way. And they actually put Jack, forth some creativity to bring it into existence. Jack and Jill is one of those random organs that yeah. Viggo Mortensen was growing in his body in Crimes of the Future. Yes! <laughs> we have to remove it. What's, what's it for? I what's, don't know. What's it called? The Dunkachino. It's so weird. <laughs> what does it do? It digests plastic. Like the, the Outlaws is just a movie that is just. The flattest version of this. Mm. The only thing I can say 
about this movie that it does that I have not seen any other movie do. And this is going to sound very mean. But it is true. I didn't hate watching Adam Devine in this. Adam Devine is a comedian and he's been in a lot of stuff. I know he's got a lot of fans. Okay. Like he's, he's, uh, what was that? Uh, he was on that TV show workaholics, which a lot of people, not me thought was very funny. Um, he was in the pitch perfect movies yeah. and I always thought he was the worst part of them. Um, He's in, he was in he's, one he's movie. He's really, those Pitch Perfect movies. I, he's fine. I just don't. I find. I, I find him. I found. I find the comedic persona he was encouraged to develop hmm. by a, a fan base or his agents or, or directors or maybe just himself. I don't know. I find the specific comedic persona he developed grating. Okay. I, I know a lot of people like it. I'm not even begrudging it. That was I just, part of the shtick. Yeah, it's, it's grating. An unaware grating character. I, and a, I can, a lot of comedians have done that. A lot of comedians have done that, but there's comes a point where you can cross a line and simply be grating. That's true. And to me, Adam Devine... I feel his, that way about Will Ferrell. So, you know, sure, a like lot he, of people like Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell, I think he's hit and miss, but he can definitely cross that line. And I, for me, I feel like Adam Devine usually is on the other side of that line. Another movie I can think of as an exception is The Final Girls which is a very underrated slasher comedy um, about uh, people who end up... Uh, there's a fire in a movie theater and the only escape is into the movie. Oh, that's fun. But the movie is on in a constant loop. So like, there's one bit where it's like, listen, let's just not go to the summer camp and then no one will die. And they just wait there for 90 minutes and then the van with everyone going to the summer camp comes back because the movie's oh. only 90 minutes long. Right. Funny. Really clever movie. I like that movie a lot. Um... Here he is not invited to be the abrasive one. He's still not great at being like the dweeby everyman, but because he's not trying to be abrasive, I'm able to enjoy him more. And so, again, it's the comedic persona he's got that has made him a lot of money. Oh. Just isn't for me. So I liked him better. I think I would rather see him outside of that role, but I would want to see him in better movies than this. So, again, it's it's kind of... It manages to be kind of painfully mediocre, hmm. which makes it not really mediocre. Because <laughs> mediocre should be neutral, right? Mediocre should be like right in the middle. In the, yeah, this like, is like not, me- not aspirational. It's, it's at like all, you're yeah. kind of annoyed at how not trying they are. Uh, but they, uh, that's 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 where I'm at. Um, but again, I've been pleasantly surprised by Happy Madison before, so I had to give him a chance. Didn't pay off this time. All Fair right. enough. Uh, tell me about another comedy I've heard much better things about. Tell yeah. me about Joyride. Uh, I'm surprised this one's not getting like a lot more buzz, because this is actually quite a good comedy. Yay! Um, Joyride is the directorial debut of Adele Lim, who was the screenwriter, uh, what, a co-screenwriter on Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, she was also a uh, co-screenwriter, like one of many co-screenwriters on Raya the Last Dragon. Okay. Um, and... The, the original working title of this movie was The Joy Fuck Club, which... <laughs> which I love yeah, a good pun. Yes, yes. I love uh, a good pun. I think they wanted to go a little bit more extreme. They, or, I don't know how you put that on a poster, like, but I love it. Well, I mean, there, there's a couple movies with fuck in the title, but... Uh, they usually, they're like, bleep. That's the kind of title... I was actually joking about this before we started recording. That's the kind of title you put on the script... To get a reader to read it first, like put it at the top of the pile, yeah. so that someone at the studio will take notice of it. Mm. Apparently, it works. Yeah. <laughs> so good for them. Uh, but yeah, Del Lim wrote, wrote this uh, wonderful comedy film about um, 
two young uh, Asian girls of Chinese descent who are growing up in a really white town in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. They're the only two Asian girls in town. So uh, we get to see sort of how they grew up and they became best friends from when they were five. Uh, They're now, when we sort of speed through their, uh, their childhood together in a prologue, they're now adults. Um, The, uh, the main character who is played by Ashley Park, the character is named Audrey. Mm -hmm. Um, The Ashley Park character is uh, like a, an aspiring lawyer and she works for this law firm. And there's a lot of uh, shots early in the movie where we get to see all of her bosses, like these portraits of these old white guys. Um, And she was adopted as a young child. So she has white parents as well. And she is accused of her, of being white. And this becomes like a kind of a crux of her own identity. Is she white? Is she Asian? Mm. Uh, She knows a little bit about her birth mother in China but has never really sought her out. And now she has an opportunity to go uh, seek out her birth mother on a business trip. Uh, her best friend, Lolo, is played by a Sherry Cola. She's like the crass one. Uh, the, the the Melissa McCarthy character. We've mm-hmm. seen these kinds of characters in all kinds of comedies. The, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the booger. Um, yeah. The, the, the Sean Patrick uh Sean Patrick. Sean William, Sean William Scott. Sean William, yeah. She's the, the Sean William Pie Scott. Yeah, yeah. She's the really horny one. Yeah. She's uh, she's an artist and she makes art that looks like genitals and she's trying to sell this thing. She's trying to be really, really shocking. But yeah. she actually, when she sells this, actually says some pretty intelligent things uh, about her own art. It's not just to be shocked. It's like, yes, I'm being shocking, but I'm also trying to get people to be less prudish about sexuality and look at sexual images and be a little bit okay and be sex- be okay with sexual imagery from an Asian woman, which is not, you know, not common enough, that, that kind of thing. So uh, she is the one who will end up go goes on this business trip with the, um, uh, 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 the main character, with the Ashley Park character. Mm. And... Uh, coming along with them is a character named Deadeye, uh, uh, played by Sabrina Wu. Uh, Deadeye is a non-binary character. Cool. They don't make a big deal of it. It's great that that just this character is sort of incidentally non-binary and maybe asexual. There's a scene later in the movie where all of the main characters have gathered in a hotel and each one of them has a sexual experience. But uh, Deadeye's sexual experience is actually just a dance-off with another character. Mm. So like that's their version of sex. And I think that was pretty cool. Cool. Uh, yeah, they go to China. They meet up with uh, Kat, who is a famous actress in China. She's played by Stephanie Hsu from Everything Everywhere All at Once. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. And they go to uh, have some drinks. And it turns out that the boss that she's meeting in China refuses to meet with her unless she can introduce her Chinese mother at like a big business function in a couple of days. So now they have to go on a road trip. And wouldn't you know, it's a wacky road trip. They run into drug dealers and they have to mm. run into have to ride with a basketball team and have orgies in hotels. And uh, the Stephanie Hsu character is really paranoid because she's engaged to this like super Christian guy uh, who's like a, her co-star on the, the uh, sort of a, a period drama TV series that she's on. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to reveal that she's actually had a very storied sexual past. And indeed uh, has never stripped in front of her fiancé because she has a rather large, embarrassing tattoo on her genitals, which we see. Ah. Uh, there, there's plenty of nudity. Uh, this film is trying really, really, really hard to be, like, shocking and naughty and dirty. And it's a little too good-natured to be shocking. I kind of appreciate that, because that kind of avoids a lot of the pitfalls of being shocking for the sake of it uh, to the point of being deliberately offensive, 
and it avoids that trap. It's not deliberately offensive. And in fact, it becomes pretty uh, thoughtful after a while hmm. about uh, the main character's identity. She's hmm. in uh, trying to figure out who she is, what's her national identity, what's her racial identity. Uh, and she talks very openly about this. Uh, is she... Her, her Asian friends say that she's too white, but she's clearly not Chinese enough for a lot of people. And that's yeah. a big issue for her. Uh, and I'm glad that this the film becomes a little bit more thoughtful about these characters. We get to know them as characters rather than just as broad, raunchy, horny stereotypes. Yeah. They're real people who happen to be very horny. <laughs> and that's great. It's a little shabby. It doesn't have like the kind of tight professional snap pop of like a really great comedy. It, it well, feels really uh, like the timing doesn't work out in a there, lot of scenes. There, it's really awkwardly edited in there, a couple scenes. There are comedies like Young Frankenstein where everything feels like ultra polished so that every yeah. joke lands as much as it possibly can. Mm. And then there's the ones where, you know, it's a little shabby mm. and that's part of it too, where yeah. that's part of like, you know, just sort of the kind of natural kind of hanging out kind of vibe, yeah. which uh, I can appreciate. Uh, the shabbiness, though, doesn't do the movie any favors, is okay. my point. Okay. Um, th- there, are, there are plenty of shabby comedies where they're just sort of hanging out and shooting the breeze, but it doesn't ta- capture that natural quality. It's clearly trying to be like a polished Hollywood film. Polish it up a little bit more. They're working with a kind of a low budget, but uh, mm. you know, if, if it had been a little bit slicker and like timed out a little bit better, it could have been much, much better. As it stands, though, I did enjoy it. I think it's really, really good. Um, I think it's plenty funny i think the raunchy jokes uh and the frankness about sexuality is welcome mm-hmm. uh and uh the way it handles sort of its, its character moments so you know when characters start to fight or when they have uh, actual moments where they have to separate during this road trip because they start to resent each other as inevitably happens uh it feels genuine it feels like these are conversations these characters would have it doesn't feel manufactured and that's deeply appreciated cool uh, yeah, it's good. It's right. Good, noted. Uh, I, I like I like Joyride. Right, well, I don't really have a good segue, uh, but I did you mention don't, you earlier. Don't have to have a segue. Just I say I'm going to talk about this next movie. I'll just yell segue and move on. Uh, earlier in the episode, we were talking about Insidious, uh, the Red Door. I teased that there's another horror movie I'll be talking about in this episode that sadly hits a lot of cliches really hard, and that movie's title is Run Rabbit Run. Run Rabbit Run is actually a film that came out last week on Netflix, and ordinarily I don't try to go out of my way. To review a movie that I just happened to miss the last week, I just I I could do that for forever. I think it's important to move forward, but this one I was particularly motivated to do so because it stars Sarah Snook, mm-hmm. and I think Sarah Snook is one of the more I would say that she was one of the more underrated From, actors of her generation. But after Succession, no, I think she, people she finally got, appreciate yeah, it. No, people know who she is because of Succession. Finally, but I was like I was I was on board with Sarah Snook before it was cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've ever seen Predestination. Uh, that's a hell of a performance. Yeah, yeah. That is a sci-fi time travel movie with twist on pawn twist upon twist. And it's all generated by great character work. And she gives an incredibly multifaceted performance in it. Uh, that honestly, in a better universe, would have been nominated for an Oscar. And it's a shame they didn't even try. Like, it's just absolutely astounding. So Snare Snook is in a horror movie. I'm down. Let's watch this horror movie. So, uh, it's, uh, Sarah Snook stars as a, I, th- I think she's an OBGYN, uh, or a fertility doctor, one of those. Uh, and she's got, uh, a, she's recently divorced. Her grand, uh, her father has just died and her daughter isn't handling it great. They, uh, uh, it's her birthday party and she, something just like wanders into their front yard and it's a little rabbit. 
And the kid's like, oh, it's a rabbit. I'm going to keep it for my birthday. And Sarah Snook's like, we're not going to keep that goddamn rabbit. There's no way we're keeping this rabbit. She's like looking around. Someone's got to belong to this rabbit. I have to put posters for this rabbit. And the kid's like, no, I'm going to keep the rabbit. I'm a rabbit. Uh, and then uh, after the kid goes to bed, they've made like a little hutch for the rabbit in the backyard. And Sarah Snook is just like so like not ready to deal with the fucking rabbit right now. She she opens the hutch, says, get out here. Go on, you're free. Go to the rabbit. rabbit. To the rabbit. Rabbit doesn't want to do nothing. It's, it's just it's just a bunny rabbit. It's just a bunny rabbit. It's not it's not a demon rabbit. It's just a bunny rabbit. And she's the rabbit doesn't do nothing. She's like, okay, fine. She picks up the rabbit oh. and is about ready to drop it over the fence when she looks behind her and sees that her kid is watching her do it. Aww. And she's like, and the kid's like maybe nine. I don't even think of that. So understands what's going on. Understands that like mom is little, doing something like a bad. Little kid, yeah. That maybe doesn't understand the context that mom is going through a lot of psychological torment right now and really can't handle a rabbit right now in her life. But it's just a bunny rabbit. It's they're, a, just a bunny rabbit. They're kind of low maintenance animals. Should be, but that's not the character Sarah Snook is playing. All right. Sarah Snook is playing a character playing a character who is very fraught, and it turns out that there is a lot in her past that she has never been very comfortable talking about. Uh, she doesn't like that her uh, ex-husband has mentioned her fraught past to his new wife, fiance, one or the other. Uh, and she definitely doesn't like that her daughter has found out about some of it. Because her daughter has, uh, her daughter's name is Mia. Her daughter has started saying, my name is Alice. And I'm your sister. Oh dear. And the sister is a point of some contention. Is she dead? Did she go missing? Where is she? Is this a thing where she's being possessed by the sister? Did she, like, find out something she's not supposed to and is having kind of, like, uh, a sort of a generational mental health thing? Because we find out that Sarah Snook's mother is currently living with dementia and that there might have been some form of abuse and she's just not actually engaging with her at all. It's one of those movies where... The audience is so unbelievably far ahead that the movie becomes... <coughs> bless you. Excuse me. That the movie becomes redundant. Oh, jeez. Because the thing is, is that these kinds of movies, oh, our child has a creepy supernatural Ghost best friend, friend yeah. or a demon that keeps following them. And that's been done a lot of times. And it can be done well. You can't just do it now, though. There have to be, you have to find a way to keep our attention and find another way to sort of make it exciting because the baseline version of this mm -hmm. is no longer effective because this has become a genre unto itself. Yeah. And Run Rabbit Run is the baseline version of this. So basically the kid says, I'm your sister Alice. And we have to like wait. Sarah Snook who's giving a good performance, but like it's the whole movie is her just saying, no, you're not. You're my daughter Mia. I'm like, get, get with the program <laughs> like like have her see a doctor at least like let's let's get this thing going because it's very very clear something either supernatural is going on or psychological thriller is going on mm. and the fact that she keeps insisting on this she starts drawing creepy pictures of the oh, rabbit yeah, you know it. like and and after a while it's just sort of this could have been a short <laughs> that's where we're at like the, the acting is good uh, the premise is fine but it does nothing new with the premise even if you look at something like um like on the, and it's basic nuts and bolts it's what is the babadook hmm. it's a fraught family a demon comes in 
mom gets, you know, pushed to the brink and that's scary, right? On its baseline, that that's not even that remarkable, but they put remarkable things on top of it. Yeah. The monster design was very distinctive. The pop-up book was very distinctive. The cinematography was very distinctive. There were elements that made it not just the baseline version of that story. Run, Rabbit, Run is the bare-bones skeleton on which you would build a better movie. Mm-hmm. On that level, it's kind of interesting in like a... Um, um, I'm... I'm thinking of this as like a screenwriting exercise. How could we have made this better? Yeah. That might be of use to some people, but honestly, it's frustratingly flat. Mm. Uh, And I don't have much more to say about it other than it's kind of obvious, (laughs) which is very, very frustrating because it's got got a good cast. Great Escachis in this. Like, it's got a good cast. I remember uh, we we reviewed a film recently where uh, a character was going through like they moved into an old house and there were like symbols carved above the doors. Oh, and, and it was, was, um, but there were like two of those last and, year. It was, just called, like, it was just called the cellar. And, um, yeah. uh, had, had a few interesting moments, the cellar and, uh, the, mm-hmm. like just good scare filmmaking. Yeah. Like a mom, um, like moves to a new house. A kid goes down into the cellar and then disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Where did the kid go? There's, there's a bit where the kid is like in a trance on the phone with the mom. Mm-hmm. And so mom's like, okay, I know you're at you're at the top of the stairs of the cellar. Just go down. There's twelve steps, and just count each one as you go. And once you hit the bottom, it'll be there, and you'll be okay. Uh-huh. And she's like, and she's in this trance, like twelve, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. It's like, no, no, you can stop walking now. Seventeen, twenty-eight, twenty-nine. It's like, where are you going? <laughs> you're like, that, that's <laughs> yeah, that a really was, that, that was a creepy. That's bit. a really creepy bit. That was a creepy bit. Um, yeah. But I remember that movie. There was a bit where uh, the dad is like investigating these symbols that he's finding mm-hmm. around the house, and he's like, wait a minute, if you arrange them. It looks like a star of some kind. Like, a, uh-huh. like, he, like it's like he discovered a pentagram for the first time, and the mm-hmm. filmmakers, oh, isn't that weird and creepy? It's like, come on, like, like, yeah. I, I've seen heavy metal records from the seventies. It's like I, this is not new stuff. I, I don't want to give a movie too many demerits just because it's following a formula or that it's familiar. No, I'm because, not just talking about a formula. No, I'm you talking know, about yeah. I, I, what I'm saying is that I think there is something to be said for. Every movie is probably someone's introduction to a genre. Mm. So there may be someone who has not seen all of these other horror movies. Maybe they're new to the horror genre. Maybe this is their first horror movie. People have those. Mm. Maybe it'll hit them harder. But horror fans tend to watch a lot of horror. Yeah. And as a result, we get comfortable with it. And sometimes the comfort is good. We look forward to the genre tropes. It's kind of fun. But... You always want to have something familiar in a new way. You mm-hmm. want someone to bring, at the very least, a distinct energy to it, a personality, a new vibe, a new look, a new plot point, a new location, something. Just something to justify this particular uh, entry in the genre's existence. Yeah. And here, the cast is the best I got. <laughs> and that's a good cast, but... No, it's just, it doesn't work, unfortunately. Oh, just, I'm going to have to let it go there. So, bit of a bummer. Uh, I, I I feel even bad bringing it up because I had to go back in time to review it. But it's what <laughs> I saw this week, and there you go. Uh, we got one more movie left, and it's called Amanda. Yes. How good a horror movie is Amanda? Um, it's not a horror movie. Um, well, then I've lost interest. I, actually, this, this film is unique. Um, oh, wow. I, I can... There's a few things you can sort of compare it to. It takes a, a couple of vibes that might be familiar, but mm-hmm. it, it blends them in an interesting way. Okay. Um, it reminded me a lot of uh, Ghost World, which is a film I'm very fond of. Yeah, you are very fond of it. Um, it's about a young woman named Amanda. This is an Italian film. 
And uh, Amanda is played... Oh, let me look up the actor's name. Um, uh, Benedetta uh, Porcaroli is the, the, okay. the actor's name. Uh, she plays um, a young woman in her mid-twenties who lives in a gigantic mansion, has always lived a life of uh, enormous privilege. Her family comes from like this uh, long line of, of pharmaceutical fortune. Mm. And uh, in living this sort of life of uh, complete privilege, she's become adrift. She doesn't really know what her, her dreams are. She has no aspirations. She doesn't uh, really have anything to do other than just sort of hang around the house. And she... It's implied she might be on the spectrum. Uh, if she's not, she just has a lot of uh, like very strange habits. Okay. She's obsessed, for instance, of uh, like her one big ambition is to go to a department store and buy enough uh, items to acquire like department store points so she can get a fan. Like she just wants a floor fan, an uh-huh. oscillating fan. That's her goal. I could admire her. Uh, she always wears the same kind of crocheted sweater vest and. She is so particular in the way she interacts with others. It also evokes a little bit of like Wes Anderson, where uh, you know the characters in Wes Anderson films are always very careful about the way they present themselves. Right, they're a very careful, very particular, live yeah. in carefully constructed worlds that yeah. they've made themselves. She kind of has that vibe about her, but this doesn't have the whimsy of a Wes Anderson film. In fact, it it's kind of uh, kind of dour in a way, uh, and she has no friends. She dreams of having a boyfriend. She remembers this one time she went to an art house and flirted with a guy once. And that was as close as she's ever had to having a boyfriend. And she has no friends. So uh, her mom says, hey, we're going to set you up with essentially an adult play date. Mm -hmm. We remember this girl you played with when you were literally two years old. You're going to go to her house (laughs) and you're going to be friends with her. Uh, So they she goes to this other woman's house uh, and she uh, the other woman also lives a life of complete privilege. And they live in these gigantic box-like houses, these big soulless edifices. And uh, she's become an agoraphobe. She doesn't want to leave her bedroom. Mm. And uh, weirdly, as they kind of are forced to spend time together and not leave their houses, they begin to form this weird sort of bond where uh, they begin to hang out and communicate a little bit. they're permitted to be strange the way they are strange in front of one another. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of little weird aside. She becomes obsessed with this horse uh, that her neighbors own. So she goes over and just sort of hangs out with the horse at her neighbor's you know, stables a couple times. Uh, I like the character. And this is where the movie really kind of flies. And why I actually hmm. really love this movie. Huh. Uh, because... She emerges out of this movie as this sort of complete person who really is defiant about the world. And this is why I'm comparing it to something like Ghost World, which is also about two young women who have a very intense friendship that is based on kind of a mutual hate for the world at large. (laughs) Uh, That movie is based on uh, trying to foster weirdness in a movie that in a, in a movie about a world that demands normalcy and how that can be uh, exhilarating, but also very self-destructive in a lot of ways. It's about uh, how exhilarating it is and how damning it is to grow up and also to not grow up. And that's a kind of the vibe you get from something like Amanda. These people have an open defiance for the world that they live in. They kind of hate their families. They kind of hate <laughs> their wealth and privilege. Uh, it's one of those things where 
they they can't feel like pain or passion because their life has been completely taken care of for them. Mm. Uh, and uh, as such, they've grown this very real palpable sense of outsider uh, resentment against everything. And this movie explores that resentment and finds a lot of anger, but also a lot of hope in it. This kind of like, there's a, a, a middle finger and a hug at the same time. <laughs> and I dig it. I dig Amanda. That sounds really good. Yeah. Neat. <laughs> I wish I had more to say so about that. Maybe, that. So maybe the, your, that does sound that distinct movie, to. I think it's the best movie I've seen this week. So yeah. Well, that's really, really great. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, if you're new, the critically acclaimed scale is a little different than the way a lot of other movies, uh, movie review podcasts review movies. Uh, we review movies on a scale of C- minus to C+, plus, where the very best you can do is a C+, plus because that's above average, damn it. Hmm. And then most movies are average. You know, some good, some bad. And then there's below average, which we give a C-. minus. So, C-, minus C, C+, plus, the best worst in the middle that you can do. Whitney, on that note, what would no. you give Amanda? Amanda's a C+. Plus. I recommend everybody to uh, seek this one out. I, I, I've been thinking about it a lot mm-hmm. since I've seen it. Uh, maybe it's one of the best of the year. We'll Ooh. see. It's a little early. Come, a little early. The, come yeah. the end of the year. But it's, it's not a little early. It's July. <laughs> well, it's halfway through the year. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. I'm like, it's, it's a little early to, you know, half a year can happen. But uh, the fact that you would think it might is very encouraging. Uh, let's see. Run, Rabbit, Run. I'm giving it a C-. minus. Um, not that it's particularly bad. It's just particularly uninteresting. Uh, so... Yeah, if you really want to see a Sarah Snook horror movie and you had that you haven't before, uh, it might be worth seeking out for that alone. But just know you're not going to see any. Uh, no, nothing new is brought to the to the to the dynamic. It's unfortunately, and that's frankly that's a real bummer. Uh, Joyride. Uh, Joyride. A C plus. Okay. It's an enjoyable comedy. Uh, it's like, like I said, it's a little shabby, but that doesn't you. Know, do the film of any major disservice. I think yeah. the characters are really great. I think the cast is really great. Uh, and, and yeah, it's nice, rowdy comedy, uh, fun time at the movies. Yeah. Uh, the outlaws, uh, I'm going it, to, it's, it's begging me to give it a C. <laughs> like, listen, we were mediocre enough, right? No, you weren't. Mediocre You're, is not a C. Mediocre we, is a C minus. Well, I know. I think mediocre by definition has to be a C. A media, but a mediocre, again, I would argue mediocre is neutral. Mm. Mediocre is maybe a little forgettable, maybe a little unremarkable, but does what it does if reasonably effectively. Uh, this does what it does by the book, but it's not a particularly good book. <laughs> uh, so I'm just, it, it, again, I've seen worse Happy Madison, I've seen better Happy Madison, but it's also like, y- y- you're not going to get anything out of this hour and a half. Hmm. You, you're not. You're like if if that's all you're looking for, is to while away some time, you'll do it. But you can do that with a crossword puzzle. You don't need this movie. Um, and it's just Ugh. anyway. Um, moving on. Uh, what do we got here? What was the next thing on the list? Uh, wham. Uh, wham. Uh, also a C plus. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you had a good wh- week. Wh- Wham is, uh, I mean, compared to last week, I think you have yeah, nothing but C minuses yeah. last week. Yeah, it's pretty brutal um, last week, yeah. But yeah, uh, no, it's it's a well done documentary about this really wonderful corner of pop music. I think that we're not finding terribly profound things 
about Wham is <laughs> perfectly appropriate to the kind of band they were. It's honestly kind of nice to know that there weren't terribly profound things to find about everything. Sometimes yeah. things are just Wham. Some things are, are exactly what they look like. Was Wham fun and shallow and the, did they have a great time? Yes. Here's a film about that. Nice. Do you like Wham? If you do, great. If you don't, yeah, now you know more a little bit more about Wham. <laughs> Good for you, Wham. Um, let's sit again here. Uh, the, the YouTube effect. Uh, C plus. I like yeah. this one a lot too. Uh, it's C plus. It's it's not it's not unqualified. Again, I do believe that while it covers everything, it covers really really well. It leaves a lot on the yeah, table, yeah, uh, which is a little unfortunate. But it covers it, what it covers so well. It's hard to be it, bad. It's old. It's old news, but it's still intriguing. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, Insidious: The Red Door. Uh, just a C. Just a C. Uh, not not a C plus. It's not like I said. Good filmmaking, mm. but yeah, not moving mountains. I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give it a C plus. I'm gonna give it a very, very mild C plus. Right. And I'm gonna say this, especially uh, as an entry in the Insidious series. Mm. I think this is actually one of the best entries in the series. I think it uh, keeps it emotionally grounded, so that the horror is actually more effective. Uh, I appreciate that it is trying to conclude the story in a way that also comments on the failings of the previous narratives. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's effective as an insidious film. So I'm going to give it a very mild C plus. Uh, some right. good scares, a uh, little unremarkable, uh, uh, maybe it, on its own, but as part of the insidious unit, I think it is very, very good. Um, so maybe it's just because everything else I saw this week sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I just really want to put some, some positivity mm-hmm. out to the universe. Anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed this week. Next week, we'll be back with reviews of the new mission impossible movie, mission impossible, dead reckoning part one. It's the seventh. We'll just call it seven. I don't know. Like Fine. there's a lot of cliffhangers this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got that coming up. We got theater camp coming up as well. Uh, a few other movies of, uh, uh, of course will always emerge. We'll review those too. Uh, thank you everybody for listening thank you for joining us uh, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode if you want to discuss anything at all really you can always email us excuse me our email address is letters at critically we might review your email uh, we might read your email and respond to it in an upcoming episode of we've got mail I seem to be running out of energy Whitney what is our PO box yeah, send us a physical letter to the critically acclaimed network PO box 641565 Los Angeles California 90064 if you want to listen to this podcast and all of our future podcasts ad free or if you want to get any of our exclusive shows like only the best where we review every single best picture nominee in history uh all our yesterdays where we review every single episode of star trek in order uh where we have discord hangouts and the like uh you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh and uh, join up we'd love to have you a big shout out to all of our patrons without whom we could not be doing this that means a lot to us and if you can't afford to join the patreon but you want to help out there are other ways to help tell a friend uh, we're the good podcast. Uh, this one's okay. Bada bing. Leave us a review. That really, really helps. Wherever you find us, even just one sentence really helps us boost up the algorithm and find more audience. So that would really be nice and helpful as well. We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. Uh, I am at William Babiani. I'm also at William Babiani on Blue Sky. Mm. Witty. I'm also on Blue Sky. I'm, yep. I'm at Whitney Seibold. I'm. S- still in in the sewer of Twitter. You can contact me there if you like. Yeah, I, but... again, I'm on there a lot less. I'm on there a lot less. I'm on Instagram as well. If you want to get, yeah. hit me up on the grams, I'm also on Instagram, but, uh, but I don't use it very often. I, I'm almost 45. Yeah, I'm not gonna join anymore. I, I've <laughs> said no to threads. I'm done. I'm, I'm not doing I'm threads. Not, I'm not doing threads. I'm threads, not gonna do any. I'm not doing not threads doing because Mastodon Facebook screwed or... over our entire industry really, really yeah. bad. So I'm just not doing it. I'm not starting it. 
I'm not even starting an well, account. Well, I'm also I'm just a, old. You know, it's not, not, like a, not a game I can play that much longer. I don't want to keep doing this. Just if, pick a fucking thing. If you're 17, have at it. That's This is your yeah, world. But, yeah, you, know, fine. you have You have more spare time as well, so... Um, in any but, case, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm an old man. If, if you want to get if you want to get me uh, on the blue sky or on the Twitter, you can do that. Indeed. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Thanks again for listening, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry. What? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.